0: Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try.
1: South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. Talk to Bob now. 210-599-5555.
2: Alright,
3: well a very good little warmer morning. I tell you, had this weather and some bouncing back and forth from almost chilly mornings to out there like it is this morning. Uh, low 70s, but very comfortable, but I tell you, these afternoons are sure a reminder that summer is on its way, and looks like we're going to drop back into a little bit more moderate temperatures. Looks like maybe next week we'll go back to some reasonable rainfall chances. So, it's Texas. What can you say? It's going to do what it wants to do, but we're here to talk about it, talk about how it impacts your gardening, and just about anything else you want to talk about regarding gardening or nature. Anyway, it's a beautiful morning. I'm glad to be here with you, and... uh, Excuse me, looks like we already have uh, James and Joyce and Kim ready to talk, so uh, you know how I hate to keep people waiting. By the way, that leaves one open line. Grab it if you like, 210 599 Let's see what James is up to. Good morning, James. Morning, Bob. How are you doing this morning? Well, I'm doing well. You're up bright and early this morning.
4: Yeah, I was thinking about putting the shave cloth on the hoop house, Uh I was wondering uh, what you thought about that.
3: I think it's time. You know, it's uh, uh, we were pushing, I don't know, when I was headed home yesterday afternoon, it was 98 degrees on the road, and uh, it doesn't take a lot of really hot, too bright days to you know kind of slow things down a little bit and we're going to get back into some cooler days but you know if summer's summer's right around the corner i think there's nothing wrong you, as you well know i wouldn't be putting 80 percent shade on but what do you put on about 30 percent
4: oh yeah we got uh, i think 40 uh 10 years ago i think is when we got that uh shade cross for the hoop house it's a 40
3: yeah yeah, that's it if it were me, I, I think I put uh either twenty five or thirty <clears throat> on my little area that I put the shade on, but I don't think forty. If you've been using it for ten years and had good results, <laughs> you know, never argue with results. My my years in the electron microscopy lab, when it was a relatively new science, I'd I'd go to the director of the lab and say, Vanita, I did such and such. Is that right? And she'd say, Well, does it work? And I said, It works perfectly. And she said, Oh, that's right. Nobody's ever done it that way, but uh, if it's working, that's the way to do it. So you know, can't can't argue with success. I think I'd I think I'd get that shade cloth on today.
4: Um, the celebrity plus that. Uh Seed we got and planted in the hoop house is already starting to put on some uh, pretty nice uh red tomatoes, um, yeah starting to come in first first in the month here, and uh looking pretty nice. I haven't cracked one open yet, but I'm getting ready.
3: <laughs> and just nothing better than that first tomato of the season and uh celebrity i just haven't seen anything better than celebrity i like some of them like traveler that you know produce a little later in the summer but i tell people you know plant different things experiment but always plant a bunch of celebrities because they're just they're sort of the workhorse of the industry and my In my experience, in my opinion, a lot of people like Tycoon because it's such a heavy producer, but I sure think Celebrity's got the best flavor out there.
4: Well, that Celebrity Plus is is looking real good. Uh, I can't see anything wrong with it, so I think maybe uh, that's going to be the one we're going to go with.
3: Sounds Um, like a plan. Some
4: of those uh, Beefmasters are uh, about they're almost two foot out of the five foot cages oh yeah they're, they're really coming on so i'm hoping i get some whoppers
3: i tell you that that tomato you know almost one slice is almost enough to do a burger unless you got a giant bun that's that's for a big tomato i that tomato's been around for a lot of years and uh for a really a tomato that lives up to its name i'll just put it that way Is it aren't good tomato too
4: uh, the uh, I was up in my pepper house uh, yesterday spraying spinosad. There's a little uh, caterpillar worm. It's black with a white stripe that's yeah. eating round holes in, in the plants. And I guess some of the bigger ones are even chewing off uh, stems up at the top of the plant.
3: Yeah and you know.
4: I don't know what it is but uh it kind of made me mad
3: <laughs> well i you know when it comes to when it comes to caterpillars I, I would never spray the entire area but i think you're you're really good to you know put out i I love the putting out the b t with a little bit of molasses in it and uh then wait just long enough for it to dry and then hit it with spinosad. And that way you got your long term protection going and you got your short term kill for anything that's already out there so um and long as you my experience is that as long as you continue to follow up with some uh, molasses sprays, I like molasses and liquid seaweed. As long as you keep that up during the season, my experience is that that keeps that BT active, uh, pretty much all year long. I rarely have to make a second application of BT as long as I'm remembering to do my molasses sprays. And I, I think it's just because the sugar in that molasses is such a good microbial stimulant, it keeps the BT active. But, uh, Uh, Yeah, spinosad's great if you get it on them, but it doesn't have any residual value. The BT has some residual value, so uh, I kind of like that one-two punch on uh, caterpillars on tomatoes.
4: And do you know what that little rascal is, black or white stripe?
3: I've seen it, but, I, you know, I'm not enough of entomologist, James. My brain says, okay, do you want me to remember bug names or plant names? And I've always opted for plant names, so it's kind of like beetles. And, uh, you know, Charles Darwin said the good Lord must have had an inordinate fondness of beetles because he made so many of them, and I think there are like 125,000 species of those, and I'm sure the the various moths and butterflies, the numbers aren't too far behind, so I, I know what you're talking about. It's similar to what as a kid we called army worms, but uh I have no idea which one that yeah, is. Yeah, that's
4: what yeah. I think that's that's what I said. Yes okay, sir. Okay, well those those peppers get uh, uh, uh half strength, seaweed and molasses every week. So uh, I'll uh, I'll dump some BT in there uh, uh, tomorrow.
3: That sounds that that's what I would do. Are you growing any shishitos yet?
4: No, I I, uh, I have the people down at the restaurant beating me up. They really want the jalapenos.
3: Yeah, well, you need to plant some shishitos sometime because. Uh, uh, that it's it's a little to, a little pepper. It's not going to take up much room in your garden, but it is one of the most productive peppers I have ever grown. And uh you know, it's it's gotten so popular in the beer pubs around. I'm sure you never frequent those places, but is that appetizer blister it in a in a cast iron skillet and then serve it with a ranch dressing? I'll bet your restaurant people that ever try that, they'd be asking you for as many shishitos as they are jalapenos because takes a it takes a good strong system to uh, eat a jalapeno, but just about anybody can eat those shishitos and get some good flavor, get some heat, but not enough that it's going to burn you. So plant yourself one or two plants and I think you'll get as hooked as I have become.
4: Okay, well I've seen the uh, seed available in Johnny's
3: catalog. Sounds like a plan. Well listen, James, you get out and uh, enjoy this beautiful weekend and pray for a little more rain next week. Yes, sir. Thanks, Bob. Always a pleasure talking to you. Thank you, sir. Goodbye. All right. uh, Next in line is Joyce. Good morning,
5: Joyce. Hi, Bob. I know you're supposed to sound awake. I'm awake, but I don't sound awake.
3: You sound pretty darn good to me. How's everything in your world?
5: Oh, just fine. I was one caller too late to ask James if that small tomato, the cherry tomato that he talked about at one time. I think he said it was Verona, V-E-R-O-N-A. Do you remember?
3: I believe that was a uh, an Italian uh, paste tomato. One of the uh, uh, that general group that. Uh, oh, golly, what what do we call them? Um, uh, I, but it, I, it was not like a cherry, but it, it was like one of the, uh, one, one of the Italian tomatoes. It, they can make kind of a pear-shaped tomato that's somewhere in between, uh, you know, a little pear tomato and a full-sized potato, but that rings, that sounds, rings true to me, and, uh, James will probably call back and at least tell, uh, tell my engineer Don, uh, which one it was, but Verona sounds, sounds pretty, pretty right to me.
5: Well, I I found seed V E R. I thought he said it was a smaller version of a Juliet, not the plant, but the tomato, a smaller version of the Juliet, and that sounded perfect to me. But
3: well, it was a really
5: expensive seed, and so I wanted just I, I wanted to be sure before it's like ten <laughs> seeds for eight dollars or
3: something. Ah, uh, that's <laughs> that's that's a pretty high price seed, but there are some of the new tomatoes, well, tomatoes and peppers, and even. Uh, That new Sweet Success Cucumber is a very pricey seed too, but it's my opinion it's worth it. But um I don't think it's smaller you know, the Juliet is a fairly small tomato itself. It's just a little bit bigger than a cherry, and if we got much smaller than that, it'd be down, you know, the size of a yellow pear or something like that. So maybe the other way around, and maybe the Juliet's like a small Verona instead of the other way around. But James will call and straighten us out on that one sometime soon.
5: Well, I was going by his advice anyway, because he talks about the moon, and uh-huh. so I decided, okay, I'm going to order me a moon book, and I did. And uh-huh. uh, it was great, because it was has gardening by the moon and goes through different phases, but um, as far as I'm concerned, you know, after the first three or four pages, it lost me completely when it got into <laughs> aspects and phases and interactions and whatever on the, but but it has a page in there where it talks about vegetables and uh-huh. flowers and then it goes month by month and tells you which are fertile days and which are unfertile, you know, and I will give it credit for starting out the chapter by saying every day is a good day in the garden. Some are (laughs) just, you can make them much better if you do it by the moon. So that leads me to my question, which was I talked to you last week about having my amaryllis and a little dwarf pomegranate and wanting to separate them and
2: and we discussed it at
5: some length. So I just I was gonna dump it out and see what it looked like and uh-huh. whether I wanted to try now or go ahead with it. Well, when I saw it was about three inches of matted dirt, I decided I to check my moon book and it said Tuesday was a good fertile day. So on Tuesday <laughs> <laughs> I decided that I was gonna to try to separate it and that turned to be a real chore. Oh, I'm sure. I take that pomegranate out from the side, but I was worried that if I went until fall and got them more dormant, that they were going to get even worse together, Mm -hmm. and so I decided to give it a shot. Well, it took me two hours. I mean, I really worked at this thing to get them separated, and as I went about doing it, plans changed rapidly, because (laughs) I wanted to separate the pomegranate and leave the amaryllis just as a farm. Right. That wasn't going to happen. <laughs> and so, of my five little five bulbs of amaryllis, I wound up with two and two and one. That's uh-huh. the way they fell apart and got my pomegranate out. And that's when I knew I'd selected pots that were way too big to put these things in, judging mm-hmm. by the
2: root system
5: that I had left. So I went ahead and got made smaller pots and what. And I guess it's just wait and see. But so far neither the amaryllis nor the pomegranate has blinked. They're now, what, five days. It didn't wilt. It didn't lose buds. It didn't do anything. So uh, I kept it in filtered light, and yesterday I decided, well... Since all the leaves on the amaryllis and on the pomegranate haven't shown any signs of even wilting, Mm -hmm. I think I'll put it in more sun. So I did, and that didn't even phase it. So is it just a wait and see?
3: It's a wait and see, but you did it right. You took two hours to do it. If you turned it into a 10-minute job, you probably would have torn those roots up a lot more, but... You did it slowly and carefully, and being a bulb, the amaryllis has a lot of resiliency. You could do an awful lot to an amaryllis as long as you don't freeze it. You can do an awful lot to it and it will bounce right back from it. So that doesn't surprise me. I think the pomegranate is the one that, um, is certainly the one that would have been more likely to show any shock. But, uh, if you had it out in the sun yesterday and it wasn't showing any, any signs of being upset i'd say it's off to a good start just watch your watering and uh i i think we can call this uh little separation of ob- uh operation a complete success
5: do you think on the pomegranate i should make a, a bit of a tip cutting back that that might uh, help
3: Pomegranates always grow more bush-like than tree-like, so I, I think you're probably, I, I'd give it another week or two, but then I, if you want to encourage branching, and long as you uh, know sun's a, a challenge for you, but uh, keep keep in mind that if you tip it back in bright sun, it will branch quite well. If you tip it back and it doesn't get you know, pretty good bright light, then it's just going to put up one more central leader and continue growing like it was. But pomegranates tend to be more of a bush than a tree-like plant, so um, it's up to you. If it's making or looks like it wants to make multiple trunks, that's just going to be its normal growth habit. Tipping it back would encourage it to do that even more in the presence of good sunlight.
2: Okay,
5: all righty. well anyway, I was just really, uh, I was surprised that it was, uh, took that long and was that much of an effort, but it seems to have worked because the pomegranate got completely bare rooted because there uh-huh. was no way that it was going. But anyway, well, the, the thing I actually wanted to call about is my neighbor, and that is something I have never seen before. She came over and said, I need help, I've got a sick plant, and um It's the the purple oxalis, of all things,
2: Mm -hmm. you know, the
5: plain purple oxalis. And she brought me a leaf, and it just looked like an old leaf. But Mm -hmm. underneath, the underneath side was covered with bright yellow, what looked like a, well, to me, the first impression I got was a lichen. Now, a lichen on an oxalis doesn't make sense, and it wasn't as rough as on the bark Mm -hmm. and stuff. But the way it was spreading, that little raggedy growth in kind Uh of clumps, fine stuck. What does that bring any bells with you? I mean, every does
3: it does it break free from the leaf, or is it an intrinsic part of the leaf?
5: Well, that was the interesting part about it to me. I rubbed it with my finger to see because it's very Uh flat. I mean, the appearance looks like a lichen, but it's very flat, and it looks like it's in globs and with irregular edges spreading across it. And when I scratched on it, uh, I couldn't really scratch it off. I could if I rubbed really hard, but uh, and it didn't seem to be into the leaf, but it would leave a discoloration where I rubbed it off. I
3: think you're probably looking at a fungus on there. Um, I don't know what it is. Uh, You know, my partner, Roberta, grows the best purple oxalis of anyone I know, in our garden comes back year after year after year. And she's seeing, uh, for the first time in a long time, really severe. looks like a rust uh, on the purple oxalis. And I think that's probably what you're looking at. Because it's actually a little bulb... Um, I think, you know, watch it a little for a day or so if it continues to spread. I would just cut all the leaves off the plant. I'd cut it down practically to ground level. I would dispose of those leaves not in the compost pile, but actually, you know, in the in the burn pile or in the trash, and spray it down good with corn water tea. Sprinkle some cornmeal all around on it. It will come right back out with little fertilizing. But I'm pretty sure, and like I say, she's not the only one seeing it. But uh, there's there's some sort of fungus out there that's really hitting the purple ox oxalis hardest not going to kill the plants but it's already made the leaves very unsightly if it's like the ones i've seen so like i say i put some cornmeal on i cut it back to ground level i give it some has to grow and let it flush out with some uh, some good new leaves as those new leaves come out i make a little corn water tea and spray them every few days and i think it'll go back to being the beautiful purple oxalis she's used to
5: well that's funny because that's what i did i you know i i'm i know it. Well, I don't know, but I felt pretty certain it was no insect. That right. it was a fungus of some sort because of the way it was spreading and the irregular edges and that crawling little cream. Mm-hmm. Yep. Was Roberta's bright yellow? I mean,
3: yellow. Uh, more more like orange, more like orange, and then browning.
5: Okay. Yeah. Okay. That's exactly what hers is. Bright. Yeah. Well, I called it yellow, but it was a dark yellow. It could be called orange. And I did. I did tell her about cutting it back. That was the thing that the first thing that entered my mind to cut it completely back. It's an old pot, like mm-hmm. maybe a ten-inch pot that's never been transplanted yep. or done yep. anything to for many years. Well,
3: and I, I thought
2: about cutting
5: it back. Yeah, I, I, would,
3: I, it would, back I would. I would certainly. It. I would cut it back I'd have a little corn water tea spray make some up and spray periodically as the new growth comes out but Joyce I think three weeks from now it'll be uh, just like it was before all this started with you know with all the wet weather not hard good rains except for one or two but just the kind of high humidity the kind of days like this morning when it was an extremely heavy dew around my house that really encourages fungal diseases of all sorts, because the number of fungus spores in the air goes up overnight. If a fungus spore lands on a dry leaf, nothing happens. When a fungus spore wa- lands on a wet leaf, then that little spore can germinate and cause its mischief. So uh, um, I suspect we're going to see, and it, it's surprising but because the roses are cleaner than I've seen in years as far as fungal problems, but there are some other fungi in the group of uh, what we call rust and uh, that are really active right now, so I think that's probably what she's looking at.
5: Okay, now corn water tea—I know what that is. But if you—if I put like a quarter cup of uh, whole ground cornmeal in a quart of water, how long should it sit there and, and see? Or oh, whatever? overnight, overnight, overnight.
3: And you could do—you could do quarter cup and, uh, and a gallon of water, and you'd do just fine. Oh, okay. Just okay. keep in mind that in a, with a small container like that, you're probably going to strain it before you use it to take the old yeah. cornmeal out in a bigger container. you get a paint strainer's bag or something like that, put the cornmeal in there, so after it's done its overnight soak, you can just throw away bag and cornmeal and all, or you can take and dump the cornmeal out on somewhere on the garden but um yeah over overnight's uh, enough to activate the trichoderma, which is what you're trying to get going.
5: Okay, well, this is just one, like, 10-inch pot. If she cuts it all down and throws the top, I mean, to one inch, let's say, is that uh-huh. about the right height? Yeah. And then uh, we make the corn water tea good. We just put it in a watering can and, and sprinkle it down good.
3: Absolutely. Absolutely. Drench it, and then as the new growth starts, which should happen within a week, just drench or spray that periodically. Oxalis takes a good deal of water and just be watering with corn water tea instead of with uh, straight, straight water.
5: Okay. Well, I was on the right path then, at least.
3: I would say better. you're yeah. very you're you're right down the center of the right path.
5: <laughs> okay. Well, um, I'll, I'll let you go because I know you're going to have a bunch of calls this morning. So give the garden girls a path
2: and
3: master. Well, I will. I will do that. And uh, we were we were talking about you the other day, and. Uh, Soon as soon as things slow down just a little bit more, we're gonna gonna give you a little update and on some other things we've talked about. You said you were interested in knowing about. And uh, anyway, it's just always good to hear your voice and know that you're doing well. And uh, you and you've just pat yourself on the back for having done a good thing with your amaryllis and. Uh, you know, with that pomegranate, I think you're off to a good start. And remember, pomegranates are pretty heavy feeders, and uh, like I say, keep it in the sunniest spot you possibly can. And you're going to have a big bush one of these days, and it will it'll remain to see be seen whether this is, plant's going to be primarily ornamental or whether it is going to be pr- fruit producing. The great majority of the pomegranates, especially the dwarf ones are ornamental uh, but they always do have a few that that have a what we call a perfect flower it has reproductive parts in it Uh, they always make a few fruits but most of the dwarfer pomegranates are grown more as a beautiful orange flowering ornamental shrub than they are as a productive shrub so it'll be very interesting to watch yours over the next couple of years and see what it grows up to be.
5: Oh, I know exactly what it's going to be, because this is the kind that has the little um, big marble golf ball size. Ah, okay. Root, and I've had it for 40 years in the yard, uh-huh. and the old one got chopped down. Oh, well, by yard. Well, it, it need to go into <laughs> why or how, but anyway, <laughs> this is the only one I have left now, and that's why I'm so... I mean, to me, it's a sentimental thing, but sure, I know it's a sure. very
3: well, you. Yard you would be very, very protective of it, and, and you've taken good care to this point And just, just keep it up. It's always good to hear from you. I've got to do a, a news break right now, so I'll we'll talk again. Everybody, thanks for listening. Back with more questions on KTSA Radio.
1: South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. Talk to Bob now, 210-599-5555.
3: Alright, back to gardening on a nice Saturday morning out there Going to get a little warm this afternoon Not supposed to be quite as hot as it was yesterday But anyway, it's going to be a great day to spend time outside Especially this morning And that's that's what we're here to talk about It's going to be Kim and Sue and Kay So let's just get right back to those phone lines And Kim's up first Good morning, Kim Kim, are you there? Don, are we hearing anything on hear Kim's? Me? Yeah, we're loud and clear now. I'll give Art in.
6: Okay. Uh, um, I um, have a little book that I keep all my recipes in, <laughs> and I've misplaced it. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and
6: I already have spider mites. And yep. um, what is So I, I wanted to get a couple of recipes. One is the seaweed. Like, is it just the... The spray version that's on the, the seaweed container, what or
3: you can you can do if you're buying it in the little ready to spray, that works fine. I prefer uh, a seaweed molasses combination. It's sort of a one two punch. The seaweed's the main thing that that slows down the spider mites, and it doesn't do it by killing the mites. It does it by. Toughening the leaves to where the mites really can 't feed on them, so uh, if you already have them, you may want to do sort of a a one two punch uh, You may want to do the okay. seaweed and and I like mixing mixing a little molasses in that just stimulates some other good things. so my recipe there is to a gallon of water, I add two tablespoons of molasses i 'm sorry two tablespoons of liquid seaweed, one tablespoon of molasses.
6: Okay. Two I. Okay, so the seaweed I have is the dry kind because it's.
3: Oh, okay. A little
6: cheaper that way, but they say to put one teaspoon per gallon for spraying.
3: I do. I double up. I do two teaspoons per gallon.
6: Okay, so so do. Okay, double up, and one tablespoon of molasses.
3: Okay. Yeah. And I. You know, I the I the my problem with the dry is it doesn't really dissolve. It goes into suspension, and in many sprayers that works just fine. But some sprayers will have a clogging problem. Um, It it goes a long way. I would encourage you to look maybe at the Medina brand next time you're buying. Buy a quart of it. It 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 goes a long way. There 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 are a lot of several several applications in one bottle. I think you'll find it easier to use and um, you might check i don't know how complete the labeling will be on yours but uh, the cold water kelps are the ones that they say are the absolute best and i know companies like medina and probably good ones like maxi crop you know are, are yeah, choosing the I best
6: maxi crop
3: that that's going to be a good product for you but um again soak it if it if there seems to be very much particular matter in there at all you might want to strain it before you put it in your sprayer. Um, because, you know, again, uh, the, if you've walked along the beach and walked over seaweed, you know that it, it's not something that melts. It's something that, uh, a dry form is always going to leave some residue behind and, uh, just don't want you to clog up the sprayer. If you do, it's pretty easy. Just unscrew the little tip on there and, and clean it out. But, uh, I, I'm just partial to the liquid because I've never had a clogging problem with it and make make okay. your applications if you've already got the mites spray once a week and on a preventive basis once every two to three weeks is enough but if the mites are already showing up and be aware there's more than one kind of spider mites they're mites or spider mites or two spotted mites uh, they all do the same sort of damage mites are much smaller and harder to see but they do seem to be getting an early start this year so uh, yeah, I think your your seaweed molasses is a good combination if you already have some. You might follow up with a spinosad spraying just to kill the ones that are that are already there and established.
6: Okay, and um, so and then the corn water tea for mm-hmm. like, you know the the blight and stuff is right. that one cup to five gallons or two cups?
3: It's if you're if you're doing it for oak wilt prevention, probably uh, two cups to a five gallon bucket. Uh, if you're doing it just as a general spray for black spot on roses and rust on oxalis and things like that, one cup per gallon is plenty.
6: Okay, so can I just do a soil trench if I'm getting some blight on with tomatoes, or do I have to spray the?
3: If possible, I would do both, because the way it usually starts, the early blight, it's in the soil, and it gets splashed up onto the plants, um, you know, with hard rain, and we've, well, now I can't say we have had it in a long time, we've had a little bit of it, but uh, putting it on the soil is going to knock out a lot of the spores, a lot of the material that's already there, but considering that some of it has probably been splashed up onto the plant, I think... Preventatively, it'd be a good idea to make a foliar spray as well. And just like with your seaweed, we know the cornmeal is going to have some residue behind. So I would either put it in a paint strainer's bag right. to soak it, or just plan on throwing pl- pouring it through some gauze or a colander or something like that to take out the mm-hmm. the, the coarser particles. And the, after yeah, you do that, the don't paint
6: strainer's bag. Yeah, it, don't
3: don't it, it, throw it, the water. the. All the way, just you know, once once you've soaked it, the cornmeal that you've soaked is still great to throw around on the ground, any places where you ha- might have issues.
6: Okay, and the last is the orange oil, is it two two ounces per gallon of vinegar?
3: Yes, that is correct as a as a weed killing, foliage killing spray. Um, orange oil can be used for many, many other things. You mix it a little stronger uh, if you have borers in trees, it'll actually go through the bark and kill the borers underneath. You mix it a little weaker if you're going use it for a kitchen cleaner and it'll be the best thing you've ever used as a cleaner uh depending on what kind of ants you're killing it uh probably going to make it uh less concentrated in this case, of course you're mixing with water rather than with vinegar, but orange oil has many many uses.
6: Okay, great. Thank you so much. (laughs) It's
3: always a pleasure. It's good to hear from you, Kim. You get out and have a great weekend. And Don, let's move on and talk to Sue. Good morning, Sue.
7: Good morning.
3: Good morning. I am
7: encouraged because... There must be a lot more smart people in the world because it's challenging <laughs> to get in.
3: <laughs> there uh either that or more insomniacs out there. At, uh, yeah, that could uh, be uh Yeah, maybe, maybe so. But uh, it is, getting, it is a full moon, so you know, some some folks that uh, Joyce was talking earlier about uh, moon signs, or I was said Joyce, or I don't know, I remember whether. Uh, anyway janitor joyce one but uh that that moon has a powerful influence on many things i i talked to dr kirby about the weird things that he sees in his vet clinic i have friends who work the er and they say oh we know when it's a full moon so you know maybe they're just more insomniacs this morning but it's funny some mornings all the lines are taken before we even go on the air and other lines so we're sitting there begging for somebody to call but i'm glad you got through it in any event
7: yeah, I was actually hoping you, you know, maybe have a show at four thirty instead
3: of five thirty. <laughs> Don't you even suggest uh. it? I, 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 our, our operations manager might be listening and saying, mm, "We're not making any money off anything else, but you know, getting up at three fifteen is as early as I want to get up oh to check the animals you know, and the cows and drive in from Bernie." So, yeah, I'd, uh, if anything, I'll, I'll go to a six thirty show. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. But the bottom line is, I'm here to help you. How can I do that this okay. morning?
7: Uh, My problem might be spider mites, too. So all my shishito peppers, all my jalapenos, they were pretty plants going in. And all the growth is extremely small, misshapen, wrinkled leaves. I've Mm -hmm. done spin the twice. I don't see any little critters, but what should I try?
3: You should try being patient. Um, The peppers, and I, yeah, I believe that it is probably some sort of virus, and it's something that peppers do when the nights are cold. That's why I usually don't recommend planting peppers early, and that little deformity, the leaves are just twisted up. If it were spider mites, you would see a lot of bleaching out of the leaves. You'd see like, you know, hundreds of little tiny holes have been punched in it, but you're looking at what peppers do when the nights are chilly. I don't think you need to do a thing other than good care. And as the nights get hotter, you'll get less comfortable, and the and the peppers will get much, much more comfortable. And um, it, it happens more with uh, the with hotter peppers. Shishito's, you know, mildly hot, but it's way beyond a banana pepper or a bell pepper. And I rarely see it on the green peppers, on the... On the sweet peppers, but, man, I see it every year on the hotter peppers, and uh, right. I think you'll find is that... Because we had nights in the 40s last week, at least in the hill country, yeah. and... We're going to have some more chilly nights. So what you're looking at is, is a condition that happens when the nights are chilly, and uh, don't panic about it. Uh, I, I can promise you warmer nights are coming. <laughs> it's, uh, okay. They'll be here before we're ready for it, and I think when you do that, the plants just all of a sudden you'll see all the new leaves coming out perfectly.
7: Yeah, as much as you like shishitas because they're not too hot, I actually think mm-hmm. the Johnny seeds that have some heat to them. So we'll see how those go.
3: Well, do, and I've never tried pickling the shishitos, but I'll tell you what we have found in that uh, um, it can make a big difference and that pickling will make some hot peppers milder and it'll make some mild peppers hotter. The TAM jalapeno, the mild jalapeno, I wouldn't give you two cents for that as a green pepper. It's just... uh, Uh, it's just a bell with a funny flavor to me but boy you pickle those things and they've got uh used to know an old gentleman from louisiana a cook that we actually took some some classes from and uh, he used to say it's hot enough to have a little authority (laughs) and that's we we found that with the mild jalapenos they were hot enough to uh really have some good flavor but not just burn you hot so uh uh, but I, I haven't tried pickling the shishitos. I think it would be a real interesting experiment.
7: Yeah, I even saw one recipe that where you did a quick burn. I mean, mm-hmm. you don't get them soggy and then pickle
3: them. So I, I That's know. interesting. That's well, the interesting. way that I've always had them at Dodging Duck and places like that uh, is they call it blistering them in an iron skillet right. and then serving them with a dressing like a ranch dressing, and uh, uh, that's just one of my favorite appetizers. <laughs> I don't mind telling you. And then when I found out how easy they are to grow, that just made it twice as good.
7: Well, okay, we'll see about the easy-to-grow part. I'm still (laughs) waiting. Uh, I
3: have confidence in you.
7: (laughs) One more question. I have three Tuscarora red crepe myrtles, Mm -hmm. and they are all coming out what I would call chlorotic. There's Mm -hmm. a little bit of green leaf at the bottom, but you see the green veins. And then the other leaves are all like yellow and pink.
3: And it's not just Tuscarora. I'm seeing that on a lot of crepe myrtles. And if you haven't already done so, check and be sure that that root flare is exposed. That will oh, yeah. really contribute to that. But beyond that, I think it's exactly the same thing. The um, uh, Chlorophyll is, of course, the green pigment in the leaves. Chlorophyll is something, it, it's colorless in, in its, you know, precursor form, which is called prochlorophyll A, and then exposed to sunlight, it turns green. But the chillier it is, the less that happens. The cloudier it is, the less that happens. And that's another one of those things that as the weather gets hotter, I think you're going to find the leaves will become a much more of the color you're used to. But having said that, I have become a big fan of using, you know, a mineral source. used to recommend greensand all the time, and it's still a good product. Uh, but this product called Azomite, uh, which is also a mineral ore. Yeah, I you know, I I'd recommend azimite on those crepe myrtles, but more than anything we, we need some hot nights and I think you're gonna find the color will come through just fine.
7: Well great. Thank you so much. Appreciate it.
3: Good to hear from you, Sue. You have a great weekend and I appreciate the call. Thank you. No Goodbye. All right, let's get a break in. Kay will be up next, but I need to take a moment here and talk to you about uh, the good folks at Southwest Metal Roofing Systems. And I know that I'm you. you can listen to lots of people talking about lots of different roofing companies all bragging about how good they are. Well, i tell you, Southwest Metal Roofing Systems has stood the test of time as far as putting on, as they say, the last roof you will ever put on your home. And that's certainly been my experience. They did my home many years ago, and it wasn't easy. I mean, I've got three chimneys to flash around, balcony around, three sides upstairs. It's a complex roof. They did the job quickly, beautifully, and in 20 years, I've had not one single problem. That's why we had them put the roof on shades of green. It's why so many friends of mine have called them to put roofs on their home, and everybody calls back to say thank you. So they're a wonderful company, and they truly, they give you the best warranty in the industry because they never have to come out and do anything. Uh, Their roofs, uh, here our roof here at the nursery stood up to baseball-size hail, with no appreciable damage and uh, I mean took out some greenhouse roofs but not our Southwest Metal Roofing System roof I'll tell you what it's just they're they're good looking they're super energy efficient they'll save you money on the energy bills every month most insurance companies give you a discount because they know they're not going to have to pay any claims and uh, there's it, 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 lots of choices when it comes to color when it comes to styles of metal I'll just have to let them tell you about it so and, and even if you're a new construction you can do like we did on our groundwater district office tell them builder i want southwest metal roofing systems to do the roof installation and you'll have the last roof you'll ever put on your home or business learn more by giving them a call 210-822-6868 that's 210-822-6868 for southwest metal roofing systems
1: south texas gardening with bob webster is on the air news talk 550 ktsa and fm 1071
3: All right, back to gardening uh, on this beautiful Saturday morning out there. Uh, It's going to be Kay and Turkey Tom and Faye. Kay, with a K, is uh, up first. Good morning, Kay. Hello, Bob. Hello there.
7: I have one question. Um, I used my pump-up sprayer with the uh, 20% vinegar and the orange oil to spray weeds. Can I just rinse that out and then put liquid seaweed to spray my tomatoes, or do I need to get a separate...
3: No, 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 no. Just li- rinse it thoroughly and always rinse it whether you're going to spray something else or not because that vinegar can be real hard on the little seals that, you know, keep the pressure in the tank. So always rinse thoroughly. Then just put a little bit of clean water in the sprayer, pump up and, uh, you know, just spray some water out so that it's just flushing through the lines. And, uh, there's some evidence that You know, a very small amount of uh, vinegar is actually beneficial to the plant. So as long as you've rinsed your sprayer thoroughly, you're just fine to go ahead and spray your seaweed or nematodes or whatever else you want to use it for.
7: Okay, well, I always rinse it, but I sure didn't want to take a chance on taking out all my tomatoes.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think I fully understand that issue, but uh, so, uh, yeah, but no, I I would not have any concerns at all. If you flush a little clear water through that, uh, I think you're just fine.
8: Oh, that's good news.
7: All right, thank you very much.
3: Well, you're certainly welcome. Thanks for the call. Uh, Turkey Tom's up next. Good morning, Tom. What's going on?
9: Good morning, Bob. How are you this morning?
3: Oh, the morning's off to a good start. It's a beautiful day and I uh, just looking forward to uh not looking forward to a hot afternoon and then we're going to chill down a little bit, but overall life's good. What can I say?
9: Well, that's good to hear. I got a couple questions for you this morning. I'm wanting to plant some Bermuda grass around the farm here just to, just in the yard. Uh-huh. And I'm What's the best way to plant Bermuda grass from seed? I know it's, it's getting about time, but uh, what should I do to the soil first, and then how should I put the seed down?
3: Well, and this is a good sunny area? Yes. Okay, that that's the most important thing is Bermuda love sun. the The seed needs to make good contact with the soil underneath. Uh, so you don't have to, and I don't recommend tilling and things like that because you just bring up weed seeds and all. But just have to rake the soil clean enough that when you put your seed out, uh, it will make good contact with soil. It won't be hung up on leaves and you know debris, old uh, grass stems, and things like that, and Bermuda is, like I say so frequently, it is a hot weather seed. The warmer it is especially at night, the better the germination will be. And it's a seed that needs to stay moist to germinate. Once it's germinated and started growing, you can cut way back on water. Once it's established, uh, you water, uh, if you want to keep a green lawn all summer, you may have to water periodically, but uh, Bermuda, one of its advantages, if you are forced to stop watering through drought restrictions or whatever else, it'll turn brown, but then it'll come right back when it gets water. So be prepared that... Uh, uh, and I'd probably wait at least a couple of weeks because we're looking at nights down in the 60s for probably the next week or so. But uh, take the time to get out. Just use a grass rake or a hard rake. Rake that soil pretty hard to get up any debris. soon as the night's for a little warmer, spread your seed, but plan on moistening it down, if you can, four to six times a day. Just a very light sprinkling over to keep the seed moist. And... Uh, it'll germinate, start growing. At that point, you just start easing off the water, and after it's been in for a month, you can practically treat it like a mature lawn. Now, something that I haven't tried, but something that probably would be a good idea is, you know, seed in my vegetable garden, I always either soak it in a little bit of garret juice, or if it's very fine seed, I'll just spread the seed out on parchment or something, actually spray a little garret juice over there because it really seems to help the seed germinate more quickly might be an interesting thing to do with bermuda seed because it is notoriously hard to get it to germinate uh, you know unless like i say you just keep it constantly moist so you might do an experiment at least uh on one area spray your seed with the dilute uh uh, solution of garrett juice let it dry and then put it out now you can put it out with one of these little hand crank spreaders. You can throw it out by hand. Um, of course, with the little spreader of some sort, you get you'll get your seed spread a little more evenly. But once that Bermuda is up and growing, it's it's gonna take off and do everything on its own. It it'll be your toughest grass that you could possibly plant out in a sunny area.
9: Okay. Well, that sounds pretty pretty straightforward had another question for you. So I've got grape vines that I've been fertilizing every, every uh, two weeks with mm-hmm. liquid fertilizer, and they're, they're growing like weeds. They're, they're new grape vines. Should I worry about over-fertilizing them with organic fertilizer, or am I good to just keep doing it every two to three weeks?
3: Um, This time of year when they're in very active growth, I think every two to three weeks is fine. In the winter months, you can cut back to maybe once a month. Probably the middle of the summer, once a month's going to do it. But I think spring and fall, uh, feeding every two to three weeks is a great idea. Some people, just to make it easier to remember... (laughs) Whether they're just watering or feeding. Some people actually use a little bit more dilute solution and just do it every time they water year round. Uh others of us who don't have you know the time to mix every time uh I just try to mix and do it every two to three weeks.
9: Okay. And I don't need to worry like since they're new vines, that the leaves are going to outgrow the root system or anything like that. No, and
3: that no, and that's that's why um, that I do recommend watering, feeding the soil rather than foliar application. Foliar application, it, you know, encourages vegetative growth at the expense of root growth. But where you're actually putting your fertilizer mix on the ground, no, you're going to get a good overall balance of growth because the nutrients are being taken up through the roots rather than absorbed directly through the leaves. Nothing wrong with the little foliar application now and then, but I tend to make my my fertilizers primarily ground applied, but then I will spray with things like Garrett juice, like liquid seaweed. Um, Those things I I think are great as a foliar application, but the fertilizer, the the true fertilizer, and Garrett juice has some fertilizer qualities, but uh, the true fertilizers I much prefer to add to the soil rather than on the foliage exclusively.
9: Okay, Sounds good. One last question. I've got some powdery mildew on a pumpkin vine. What's the best way to get rid of it? I've tried soaking some corn water and, and putting that on there. It didn't seem to make much of a difference.
3: Well, it, once you've got the powdery mildew, it's going to be there. You can stop it from spreading, and its I think it's probably better as a preventative than as a curative. But in addition to your corn water tea, get in the habit of spraying regularly with uh, liquid garlic uh garlic is, is a great fungus preventer uh not quite as good as as, as curative as the cornwater tea is but as a fungus preventer spraying every few weeks with uh with just a liquid garlic solution helps a great deal The uh, lady who's a world authority on compost tea, Elaine Ingham, was listening to her lecture one time, and she explained that there are only so many sites on a leaf where fungus can get started, and she said when you spray with the garlic, you're encouraging so many beneficial fungi that there's just no room for the powdery mildew, for the different fungal diseases to get started. So on pretty much everything that's susceptible to mildew, and that's going to be pumpkin, squash, cucumbers, pretty much that whole curcurbit group. If you can spray periodically with something like garlic, uh, you're gonna head off a lot of those problems before they even get started.
9: What's the secret to getting liquid garlic? Is that something you buy or is that something you make with garlic? The
3: easiest, it's easiest to bake, to, to buy. If you have a garlic press, you can make your own. Uh, but there's a company, the company's actually called Garlic Research Labs, but they make a product called Garlic Barrier. They make another one called Mosquito Barrier because it's a great thing to spray around the yard if you're going to have guests or something like that and you want to run the mosquitoes off. But I think most nurseries will carry it either as mosquito barrier or garlic barrier a little bit goes a long way and compared to trying to trying to squeeze your own it's it's the easiest way to go
9: all right i appreciate it bob
3: i appreciate the call get out and have a great weekend (laughs) thank you you, sir thank you all right Faye, hang on just a second let us get the necessary break in here and you will be up next i get to talk about nature's creation and their fine products and Lots of different things they make, natural and organic products, and again love their compost, love their mulch, love their uh their fertilizers, love their cornmeal they they just package a lot of great things. The one they want me to feature today is their twenty percent vinegar they call it uh uh what do they call it uh weed and grass killer. It's a foliar 20% vinegar combination that, uh very, very effective in taking out all tender weeds and really putting the hurt on even the tougher things. It's easy to use. It's safe to use. Use it in the heat, and you'll see the fastest results, and uh really does work. seems to be a fairly stable form of the vinegar, too, which means uh, once you've diluted it, you need to spray it, but uh, we'll keep for a long time in the container. Once again, name Nature's Creation stands for quality and lots of different products. Uh, You'll find these products a lot of different places. You're going to find them, oh gosh, you know that Phanix carries them, Rainbow Gardens carries them. Um, The folks at the plant house, both the New Braunfels and in Kerbal, carry their products. Millburger, friendly natives up in Fredericksburg. uh, Oh, Bandera, True Value Hardware, Bolverde Feed and Seed. (laughs) Just a lot of places that carry good things from nature's creation, including us here at Shades of Green. Look for their their weed and vegetation killer.
1: South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster, News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071.
3: All right, back to gardening. Don tells me that Faye is the only person we have waiting, so that means there's some open lines. You've been getting a busy signal. You know the number, 210-599-5555. I say good morning,
10: Faye. Good morning, Bob. I have a long list this morning. (laughs) Well, take your time, and let's get some answers. Uh, One thing is if I uh, lift a brick or stone, there's a little... Um, copper-colored, long, skinny snake there. And I'm wondering, is that a good or bad copper snake?
3: It's a good copper snake. It's, uh, you know, long and skinny is the operative word there you can tell in an instant it's not anything harmful uh, and if it's you know smooth colored then or, or uniform colored it's one of the many little just what get lumped into the uh, the term grass snake and there's a tiny little one they call a worm snake because it's so small and then you move up a little bit you get into many different garter snakes but all those are good bug eaters the only harm they're ever going to do you is scaring you half to death when you didn't expect to see them
10: okay we've got plenty of big ones that do that too oh yeah
3: <laughs> yeah and i i recently saw one that that kind of puzzled me because it actually had the markings of a copperhead but it didn't have you know the distinctive cat-like eyes and didn't have the uh uh, quite as, it, it just didn't, it, the pattern looked so much like a copperhead, but something just said, no, it's not. It turned out to be a very unusual color variant of a hognose snake and one of the prettiest snakes I've ever seen. And I just, you know, put that log back down and let him or her go about their business. And I hope they make a bunch more because, uh, I, as long as I see them first, uh, snakes, even poisonous ones don't bother me, but, uh, there's sure some pretty characters out there.
10: We've had so many holes into the ground here mm-hmm. um I'm wondering who lives in them um could be snakes in many cases would you say well that hole would be a
3: nice place for a snake to live because it doesn't really have the ability to dig now some of them will kind of throw their back their body back and forth sideways and partially cover themselves in sandy soils but um, those are not usually found on this continent and some of them are pretty bad guys but what you're most likely looking at Uh, Things like cicadas, you know, their larval form stays in the soil for several years, but when it emerges, it leaves a hole as big around as your thumb, and that's just a great place. I've seen, you know, little toads get down in there. I've seen snakes get down in there. You have digging creatures like mice and things like that that create additional little burrows little holes down in the ground but where you're just seeing a bunch of holes suddenly appear out around the yard around the garden those are probably insects emerging and anything that is living in them is just living there by coincidence not because it intentionally made that hole in that spot
10: the snakes typically not live in holes. Do they get under um, logs and things like that more likely? Yes.
3: Rarely do I ever see a snake, you know, in a, you know, in a hole that is straight down into the ground. In fact, God, when I was a little kid, I can't tell you how many I chased and caught and everything else. But they much prefer to be in a wood pile, to be. Uh, Oh, we were actually walking last time I was in Georgia at a at a gift market. We took a day to go out to a nature preserve and walk and there's about a four foot black rat snake on on an old dead limb and stood there and watched and he went right down inside of the limb through a hole in the limb. So they they like to be out of sight so to speak but as far as a hole straight down in the ground that's very unlikely to uh, have a snake in it may very often have a toad in it and i'll occasionally have holes in the yard and i'll stand there with the hose and fill them up just to see who comes out and it's usually a toad is probably the most common thing to take advantage of a hole but no snakes snakes tend to be in burrows tend to be you know under wood under debris unless they're actively hunting and most snakes including you know the the poisonous ones uh you have uh, they will catch one meal and then they sort of go out of sight and probably don't hunt again for two or three weeks so uh they're not except for time of the year when they're moving back and forth in their mating patterns uh they don't they don't venture very far from home and uh most of the time they're not giving me where you're going to encounter them unless you're unstacking a wood pile or moving rocks around or something like that
10: well, that really helps to understand them better because we have them <laughs> for sure. Well, and, uh, and
3: understand that they they it's referred to be as being poikilothermic, which means they're cold-blooded. And on a cool morning or evening, they're going to be very lethargic. Doesn't mean they can't move. Doesn't mean they can't bite. But um uh, they can't get too cold. They can't get too hot. You'll rarely see a snake out in the heat of the day. You'll find it in a uh, shady spot or uh but other than you know being early morning um and you know early afternoon before it gets too hot that's the time they're going to be most active is at moving then sometimes early evening uh they'll move out we used to collect them my summers in the wildlife management area we collect them off the roads because they crawl out on the road to get the additional evening heat but uh Snakes, as long as you look carefully where you put your hands and feet, they're not much of a threat to you, and just just common sense
10: good, I sure appreciate you going over that Bob it's, it, That tells me things I didn't understand, so that well,
3: and I one other it. thing I will tell you while we're talking reptiles is there I mentioned the the hognose snake that was an unusual color variant, but color is not always a real good indication you know of of what a snake is, because sometimes you'll have an oddball snake that just uh just doesn't have the expected color. I have a friend up in the Burnie area, and she actually got bitten by a coral snake was quite sick, but she I guess her son actually found this snake in the uh, scupper on their swimming pool, and uh, it was what they call a melanistic form of a color snake, of a coral snake that looked nothing at all like the typical, you know, red, and yellow, kill pattern. And uh, she thought it was a garter snake, picked it up, saw the mouth on it, and threw it. And as she threw it, the mouth opened, and one of the fangs just scraped her, and she turned out to be. You know, pretty sensitive to the venom, and uh, was was sick for some time. So, always always treat them very carefully, and just remember they don't always look like the picture in the book. But on a small round uh, snake that is not heavy bodied, um, no, if it's if it's coppery colored, uh, one out of a thousand might be something different. But they're going to be a form of a, a garter snake, and uh, and your friend in the garden.
10: Good, good. Well, thank you so much for that. My uh, um, plant question is about my squash that seemed to be yellowing and then maybe dying even. What uh, what could be going on with that, some of my squash? How big are the
3: plants when they go into this decline?
10: They seem to be kind of ready to flower and, okay. uh, or maybe even have started.
3: The vibores are the most common thing. Uh, squash vine borer that moth comes in lays the egg and then that big grub-like larva just starts hollowing out the inside of the stem and your squash will go from looking beautiful one day to being totally droopy the next day and then being dead a week later so squash vine borer is the most common problem now as you have probably heard me say I I just I've tried every repellent in the world and not had complete success so I'm a big believer in injecting that BT directly into the stem of the squash uh, when the plants are very young and that has helped probably eliminate 95% of it in my garden.
10: Okay, I have not really had that problem before so that's uh, something Do, that's
3: do you know happened. what do you know what the moth looks like that lays the egg that makes the squash vine borer? No. Well, Google it and look at it. If you have a copy of the Texas Bug Book, uh, there's a real good picture in there. Once you've, it actually looks more like a wasp than a moth. But uh, once you've seen what it is, you'll know what to look for as far as the adults and um, they. I I went for years without having them, and old Malcolm Beck used to say, yeah, they're a problem with a home gardener, but never in a big patch of squash. Well, I found they can be a problem for anybody. So uh, you can go for years without having them, but I tell you, once you get started, uh, they'll probably be an ongoing issue. So learn what the moth looks like and learn about injecting the stems.
10: Okay, I sure Sure, well, and the only other question I had, I've, ha- I've had you a long time this morning, if you've got time for another one. Um, I have a, a seed mix for equine um, forage, uh-huh. and uh, I- any ideas to give me? I don't have equipment, but I want to just kind of do some pat- patches by hand. Um, would you have an idea?
3: I wouldn't really know what to tell you as far as varieties. Uh, Again, I'd invite you to call Dean Williams over at Douglas King Seed here in San Antonio, and he'll ship to your door. It's not, uh, not a matter of coming to pick the seed up. He can get it to you. But he probably would be the... Best source of information on what's going to be best as far as forage for, you know, horses or ponies or whatever. Uh, But as far as planting, uh, then the same thing I was talking to a caller earlier about Bermuda. The main thing is that the seed make good contact with the soil. You want to rake the area so that when you throw the seed out, it's not sitting up on top of dead grass blades or leaves or things like that. Just good seed to soil contact. Uh, treating the seed with a little garret juice beforehand, I imagine, would be a good idea. But, uh, as far as varieties, uh, call Dean or you, you may have, you know, a local source there. Uh, that knows something about, uh, about agriculture and nutrition, you can call Fred Morales down at Morales Feed, south of San Antonio. And Fred could probably, he works with so many farmers and ranchers, uh, you could probably talk to him about what he would suggest. And it never hurts to talk to two or three sources, and if you find that there's there's one variety in common that all of them mention, that's a good one to focus your energy on.
10: Okay, well, I, I sure thank you for all the... T- Answers I got from you this morning, Bob. Sure, appreciate it.
3: Always a pleasure to visit with you. Thank you. (laughs) Goodbye. Alright, let's see. I need to get a break in here. Well, what do you know about that? My next uh, sponsor is Fred Morales, and uh, Fred's just a, a great guy. Morales Feed has been around for a long time, very widely respected in the community, not just for what they do for farmers and ranchers, but just what they do to some more community activities, and I love recommending good people, and Fred Morales is good people. i tell you, it's uh, real interesting, all the things he does to help farmers and ranchers improve their land, and he's come up with a compost source that is cheap enough to be used on acreage. Uh, I would not recommend it for your yard or for your vegetable garden, but out of those pastures where over the years organic content's gotten really low, nothing brings that organic content back up like good compost does. And uh, Fred has a good source. Fred can actually help you with the application as well just the reason that so many lands have become so unproductive is just doing the wrong thing for many years with chemical fertilizers and over tillage of the land, but doing the right thing to help bring that soil back is also very, very important. And Fred's done more to help people than any man that I know. And like I say, he's got a good, very moderately priced compost product that you may want to take a look at. So give him a call down at Morales Feed and check out the K-line irrigation and all the other fine things they do. That's Fred Morales with Morales Feed.
1: South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071.
3: All right, back to gardening. Uh, that long commercial break ran us right up too close to the news here. So uh, Ron and Curtis and John don't want to rush you here. So be patient while we do this. Got about sixty seconds here to remind you that it is getting much warmer out there. I think you find to plant periwinkles now. I think in the garden you're okay to start planting okra, along with all those hot, uh, hot, hotter peppers that do like the hotter nights to really grow and produce well. Uh, in the flower garden, like I said, the, the periwinkles or venca starting to be in relatively good supply. Those little soirees that I love so much, there's still not a lot of those available out there, but your bigger varieties, and I do recommend, uh, the XDRs and some of the, uh, varieties that are more resistant to the fungal problems, but, uh, there getting to be quite a, quite a few of those. If you've not discovered Angelonia, Tell you what, that is a summertime champion, in my opinion, in the flower garden, and you really ought to check it out. Uh, Pentas, uh, another great plant, and then when you're looking for a little bit of color, uh though things like the dusty miller and and shady areas, the coleus and the polka dot of course potato vine lots of things to plant so get out and do it today right back after news here on ktsa radio san antonio texas
1: south texas gardening with bob webster is on the air talk to bob now 210-599-5555
3: all right back to gardening on a beautiful saturday morning out there it's going to be ron and curtis and john and ron is first in line good morning ron Good morning,
11: Bob. I got two quick questions. One, uh, landscape plant. I've had lantanas in the front of my house and had four or five of them. Two of them froze, never came back. And the other two, uh, you know, they're close proximity, but I don't know why. I hope they come back, but the, the dead ones never did. So I want to replace them with something. And I, I need some suggestions on what I should replace them with. Just put some more lantanas in
3: there or something else. A sunny area?
11: <laughs> yeah, well, it gets the uh evening uh, the afternoon sun and the and towards the evening. It, it faces northwest.
3: Okay, so it does get pretty hot sun. Lantanas are typically very cold hardy, but we've had abnormally cold years two out of the past 3 years, and the ones that I've seen that were heavily mulched in the winter virtually 100% of them have come back. Unfortunately, some of the ones that were more exposed or were drier uh, have not come back, and if they're not if they're not out by Mother's Day, I think I'd be looking for something else. You're you're not looking at a real expensive plant, so if you've enjoyed the lantanas, I don't see anything wrong with, you know, replacing. I mean, a plant that costs less than a good hamburger is is certainly not a bad investment. But if you want to look at other cold-hardy, sun-loving, just bloom-all-the-time plants. Uh, I would look at Salvia greggii. It's the evergreen form of salvia. Uh, grows depending on the color, maybe 18 inches tall, but there's a hot pink. There's a, sort of a lavender color. There's an orangish one they call Salsa. Uh, there's pure white, there's pure red, and those things are just bulletproof. I don't think I've seen a single one of those that died with the cold. Uh There's a lower plant, which is called skullcap. Now, there's one form that grows in the shade, uh, but the hot pink form and there's a white form <coughs> that grow in the sun, and they are pretty much ever-blooming. Uh, and, and again, make a good, you know, fill in in the landscape. And I think if you're looking for something different, those would probably be my two top choices for Lantana replacements. Now, if you wanted something a little taller, uh, there are some new varieties of Esperanza which just incredible colors. They're going to get up about four feet tall, so they're much larger than the lantanas. But uh, they're tropical. Again, if we get another 10-degree winter, they might suffer some damage. But, gosh, I've seen some beautiful examples of uh, some of the new more compact Esperanza. And, of course, going some eight or ten feet tall, the old uh, uh, Gold Star is, is still a good one but some of the new compact ones that range from a yellow with kind of a russet colored throat to a true orange to an almost red they're certainly worth looking at as well but uh those well, are just a few suggestions yes sir
11: Okay, so salvia and the skullcap are the two things I probably ought to look at.
2: And, and
3: maybe well, yeah, there there are many different salvias. There are probably well over 100 different varieties, most of which are cold-hardy, most of which freeze back in the winter and come back out in the spring. The salvia greggii, G-R-E-G-G-I-I or, I think that's the way it's spelled, uh, salvia greggii, is the one that is evergreen and is consistently the most cold hardy. Most of the others are going to be about the same hardiness as Lantana, but uh, especially that hot pink form, the red form, the white form, those are about as bulletproof as they come as far as as uh, as far as cold and heat. They, they love it. They'll be in solid bloom all summer long. Okay, thanks. This,
11: the last question is, I've got a garden, a pretty big one and it, got overcome by grass, some Bermuda, <laughs> some other kind of grass, and I don't use uh, chemical stuff, and I don't use Roundup or nothing, but I do vinegar and uh, orange oil, and it right. like, kills it, but then it's loaded with the runners, and I don't know how to get rid of those. I mean, you say don't kill them. I don't want
3: to get rid of all the dead stuff out of that. Well, that's, uh, I jokingly tell people, sometimes you just have to move, and you don't want to do that. But, uh, if they are indeed dead, you can just plant around them. But Bermuda's hard to kill because it just resprouts and resprouts from the runners. The only way to, that I have found, without uh, just taking extreme measures, is in the hot summer months, usually July and August, you can do what we call solarizing, and Uh, you may want to do one of your part one part of your garden at one point and while you plant in the other and then you know flip-flop planting the one that you've killed it out but moistening the soil covering it with plastic either clear or black for about six weeks or so that literally just steam sterilizes the soil it's going to it's going to get rid of everything it's going to drive your earthworms out it's going to kill most everything that's in the soil the microbial life moves right back in or you can replace it very quickly with compost tea but that is the only with with nut and with Bermuda Grass, that is the only way I know that you will truly eliminate it. All
11: right. Well I appreciate
3: it, Bob. Thanks a lot. It's always a pleasure. Appreciate the call, Ron. Thank you, sir. Ah, next in line is Curtis. Good morning, Curtis. I uh, e dropped off, then I guess that would uh maybe I'll look at my list, then uh John would be next in line. Good morning, John.
9: Good morning, Bob. I've a uh... Question for you. I talked to you last week about the onions, and they f- fell over. Uh huh. They were
4: good to touch, and then they were soft on me yesterday. So I pulled those. Good. And and then I have uh, the jalapenos are doing real well, and the carrots. My main question is: is when I I I don't can anything. Mm-hmm. The best way to store these, because I have maybe fifteen jalapenos, and I I kind of like to use them every day.
3: Right. And, the will. And,
4: and after about
2: five days to seven days, they go soft.
3: Yeah. And what you need to do is just uh they will last a lot longer on the plant than they do once they're picked, and once they're approaching you know being full sized uh the flavor's about the same uh letting them get to where they're really mature doesn't really improve things and and they 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 keep in the refrigerator for a week or two, but um short of pickling. Uh, or drying and smoking there's you know they're they 're not like onions they weren 't meant to have a dormant season, so what I would recommend is just don't pick any more at one time than you need for that meal. Go out and pick next time you're cooking and do that repeatedly you're going to lose a few of them that are going to get either woody or uh, or turn red at which point they lose texture anyway but um, I guess bottom line is they keep a lot better on the plant than they do after you pick them.
9: Okay, so if I have too many just give them away.
3: Just give them away or learn about canning because it's not that difficult and uh I tell you and life's just been very very busy for for me the past couple of years but back when we uh and uh uh took time to do it, canning those mild jalapenos. Everybody that we ever gave a jar to brought the jar back empty and said, I hope these come with free refills because uh, you may find friends you didn't know you had when you share some of the produce that way. And uh, it's not difficult to do. And we're using an acid canning uh, process. It's very, very easy and very, very safe.
4: Is it uh, similar to canning tomatoes?
3: Um, would be somewhat similar to canning tomatoes. Yeah, they, uh, um, they're a little tougher. They they don't they have fewer problems than tomatoes and of course with tomatoes you have to be careful you're only using the red tomatoes you're only using high acid tomatoes uh, but with the peppers um, I'd I'd say they're easier than tomatoes if you ever want a good book uh, there's one by the it's either University of Georgia or Georgia State but it's called so easy to preserve Uh, You get it directly from the school, it's about 15 bucks, about 400 pages long, and it will answer every question you ever had about freezing, drying, canning, pickling uh it's just to me it 's just the the Bible for somebody that wants to really make use of things out of the garden but it 's called so easy to preserve it's it 's spiral bound but uh, and, and it is tough it 's something that <laughs> you can you can have it open while you 're cooking and uh, it 's not going to fall apart on you but uh, uh I think it'd make good reading reading or you know father's day's coming if you 've got somebody in your life that's saying What am I going to get you for father's Day tell them uh, so easy to preserve it 's a book you want thank you. You're welcome. I appreciate the call this morning, sir. Thank you. All right. I uh, tell you what, let's get a break out of the way here one minute early, but uh, better to be early than late. Another company I look forward to talking about, and that is S.A. Rainmaker. There's so many companies in the sprinkler business that just don't know what they're doing. I I just don't. I I can't put that in a delicate way. There are a lot of folks out there installing sprinkler systems that aren't doing it right. They either give you a system that doesn't have good coverage. They use a thin wall pipe that breaks too easily. They don't put the right controller in. They don't put a flow sensor on it. If you go to SA Rainmaker, you're going to get a good job first time every time. I've recommended these people for close to four 40 years now. Let me tell you, they're just the best in the business. They're reasonably priced. They revamp old systems. They install new systems. They install a flow sensor. If you don't know what that is, uh, it's a little device that detects a leak before you know about it. Many people, the first time they know they have a leaky solenoid or a problem somewhere is when they get an enormous water bill from saws. Well, this senses that kind of problem and shuts the system off until it's repaired. So it's just a real good thing, and SA Rainmaker makes that a part of all the systems they install, and like I say, they retrofit a lot of older systems as well. Leaky solenoids, controllers that need to be replaced, S.A. Raymaker does it all, and they're just as happy to revamp your old system. Now, I guess there are times that it's just better to go with the new system, but uh, they're not these people that are going to take a 30-second look and say, oh, nope, we need to install the new system for you. They're going to work with you on the system you have, and when it's time for a new system, they're very, very reasonable on their prices. They guarantee their work. They stand behind their guarantees, and they do an excellent job. If you'd like to learn more, give them a call, 210-599-0012. That's 599 00012. I think you'll find that they You have the same experience I've had Over the years They're simply the best in the business S.A. Rainmaker
1: South Texas Gardening With Bob Webster News Talk 550 KTSA And FM 1071
3: All right Let's get back to gardening And straight back to the phone lines it's going to be Curtis and PJ and Chris Curtis is up first Good morning Curtis Hello. Good morning. Good morning, Good morning
6: sir. I have a, a
3: huge dead tree
11: in the backyard. I'm pretty sure it's dead. Uh-huh. Not everything is leafed out except that tree.
3: And what kind of tree is it?
11: I don't know. I can't <laughs>
3: tell you. <laughs> okay, okay. The the only trees that I'm seeing that haven't leafed out that may still have some life in them or pecans i don't know why the pecans are so slow coming out but even those ought to be showing some sign of growth so um it's not a good situation to be in um are you looking for somebody to take it down are you thinking about replacing where where are you in this process
11: I, I think I would like to have also a couple of trees in the front yard. One, that uh, a branch fell off of one, and mm-hmm. cutting it up felt like I was cutting deadwood, even though it had lots of leaves on it.
3: Uh-huh. Uh, and it was very brittle. Uh-huh. And, uh, it's... Yeah, and that's largely due to the drought we've had. Uh, the trees just don't have, and that's why so many of them were busted up with the ice that we had in lots of the area, and it's why we've had some pretty severe windstorm damage, is that just with, with less moisture in the soil, there's less sap, and with less sap, that seems to be contributing to... You know, a, a lot of very, very, a great deal of brittleness, shall we say, in the trees. There's nothing like rainwater, but, uh, it's to the point that if you're in an area that didn't get good rain, I'm telling people turn that hose on really slowly, let it run for hours at a time, and, uh, you will reduce that problem a bit, but, uh, Uh, there's a there's something called summer limb drop syndrome and nobody's ever fully identified what causes it but it's as we get into hotter weather sometimes trees will just drop enormous branches for seemingly no reason and uh, if we don't get some good rains I'm afraid we're going to see more of that this summer but um, uh, I guess bottom line is I'm, I'm not really surprised I've seen that in you know, trees around my ranch, my things in my yard over the years have gotten good care and developed good root systems. But, uh, might I tell you, you, get out and, you know, walk through the open country. There, there's a lot of, still a lot of damage out there.
4: Okay.
11: Well, what I'm, what I'm looking for is the, the arborist.
3: You mentioned this fellow
11: that has
3: that retired. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, his name is David Vaughn, and he will certainly give you the best, most honest opinion of anyone that I know as far as, uh, you know, what what to do. And like I say, he has nothing to sell you other than a little bit of his time, and he's very reasonable, but... Uh, Uh, David worked for uh, probably the best arborist that I know in San Antonio for many years, got to a certain age and said, I want to spend more time fishing and less time working. So he does consulting only, but if you want to look him up online, it's David Vaughn, V-A-U-G-H-A-N, Arbor Care. I've gotten a little bit better with this phone, so I was able to pull up his number. It's 210-788-4986. Um and, and he will certainly give you good advice on what to do and how to handle it. Um if you are looking for somebody to take the dead tree down, uh he can probably make a good suggestion. But the most important thing if you're if you're you know, looking for somebody on your own, be absolutely certain they have insurance to protect you and they have insurance that covers their uh their climber, so to speak. And because uh uh the weird litigious world that we live in uh you can call somebody like these guys that just have a pickup truck and a sign, and one of their guys falls out of the tree and then sues you for his medical bills, so very important. ask him for a certificate of insurance before you let anybody work on your property
0: okay
11: that's what i needed this morning bob thank
3: you very much well it's my pleasure to help you and you get out and have a great weekend and uh don let's bring up pj good morning pj good morning bob how are you doing Uh, it's just a nice day out there and uh I don't know. I'm a morning person, so I love this time of day. Some some folks are evening people, and they, oh my my business partner's mom used to work for us, and she had a sign up that said if the if uh, God had meant for man to see the sunrise, he would have arranged for it to come up a little later in the day. <laughs> yeah. I'm not part of that. I, this is my favorite time of day. So it's uh, it's a good day out there, as far as I'm concerned. How are you doing?
12: Oh, I'm good. I like morning too. Um, listen, I've got a magnolia tree that's probably 60 years old. Mm-hmm. Uh, several years ago, the top, probably third of it, got burned enough that I had to cut it away, and then in this last couple years, with the dryness and the freezing, about another uh, two-thirds of what's left appears to have gone dead. Uh, one side of the trunk has black splotches where the bark is peeled off, and the mm-hmm. other Third is still leafed out and had flowers and looks good, but I'm wondering, uh, you know, should I just um, cut the dead limbs and leave that other half and hope that it regenerates somewhat? There are some... suckers coming up from the bottom too
10: sure
3: sure um, it's it, it's up to you and uh and to your family <laughs> i guess i should yeah. say sometimes <laughs> us guys don't get to make all the decisions but um it sounds like it's you know it's not a very attractive tree at this point and i have to tell you magnolias are one of the stateliest most beautiful trees you will ever grow but they're hard to maintain you know in this area and i doubt that this tree's ever going to be a thing of beauty again if it's acceptable to you the way it looks if you enjoy the glossy green leaves and the you know the beautiful flowers um the the thing that i find the most common problems with magnolia is other than the fact that they just don't like our soils here but um they they have a very sensitive root system as far as heat and a lot of people probably people that own the house before you may have trimmed up the lower limbs which is a huge mistake on a magnolia you ought to let it make oh, limbs. Okay make it let it make limbs all the way to ground level because that's the tree's way of shading its own roots if those limbs have been removed uh, through you know drought damage or through incorrect pruning you've got to maintain two three four inches of good mulch on top the soil at all times to keep that soil cool so it sounds like we've just hit on a lot of what the problem is with TJ's yeah, magnolia.
12: Got exposed, it's got exposed roots and the lower limbs were trimmed not by me yep. before I got here. Exactly. But yeah. And then uh, what about if will the suckers uh come up should I leave them and take the rest of the tree down or should I, are they small enough that it's not ever going to be another tree again?
3: It's never going to be another tree. It'll be a bush. And uh, you know, and that's okay. but but as far as you know, the the, the scientist and the arborist out there, they refer to it as a central leader, not as a trunk. Yeah. <laughs> you can okay. tell what I what I think of snooty people, but um, uh, it's it's never going to make a single trunk and make a pretty tree again. I and okay. and the little shoots, and you can imagine this. You can go out and look at it. And, you know, where the, these little shoots are coming off a big stump that is 80% dead, they're very, very weak. Uh, yeah. even if one that was probably two, three inches in diameter, you could take and push real hard and it would just split right off of that, that dead, down yeah. to the part of the stump that's still alive so
2: yeah
3: um the the decision is yours though if you would like to have yeah. a magnolia bush that blooms uh <laughs> you know go for it otherwise it sounds to me like uh and if you want to put it off till fall you can plant from a container you can plant 365 days a year in our climate but sure. the best times to plant are October, November because that gives a tree the best time to get established before, you know, summer's heat. And typically summers are harder than winters. Past three years, I don't know. But um if you want to put it yeah. off till fall to do it, but at some point I think your next step... Uh, other than mulching it to save what you have is going to be to cut it off get somebody come in with a stump grinder and grind that stump 2 3 inches right. uh, or more down right. into the ground so you don't get a bunch of resprouting but uh, uh that that trees beyond the point that is you know that I don't think you'll ever yeah. make a tree out of it again
12: okay well i did i did plant a small bradford pear which also froze of course in this last uh Uh, freeze we had, and it's shooting up some, again, suckers from the bottom, but it's not that big, and I'm wondering if I cut the main tree, which is probably uh, three-quarters of an inch through, it wasn't that big to start with. If I cut that, will those uh, sprouts... Should I let one of them trim them all but one and let one of those just keep on going up?
3: You can do that if you want to, but I hate to tell you, I think Bradford Pear is another crappy tree for this area. They, they're beautiful for about 10 years, and then they just self-destruct. Yeah, uh they, they fall apart. I've just start falling apart. Yeah. So uh, yeah. um, I, my opinion is when you plant a tree, it ought to be good you know, for the next 100 years or so or maybe at least the next 50 years so. I would be pretty careful on what you replace with, and um um but again the only thing that's important about a plant or about a landscape is that it please you, so I'm yeah. not going to rule out anything, and I'm not going to insist on any one thing. I do yeah. strongly recommend staying away from live oak and red oak because of the oak wilt potential yeah. but uh and there there are a few other trees that. My old mentor and friend, Alton Grimm, used to tell me there's no such thing as a good plant and a bad plant. All plants have good characteristics and bad characteristics, and you just have to choose the ones that have the fewest bad characteristics. So uh, they're trees that, that I love, and if you're looking for you know a medium-sized tree with flowers, there's some crepe myrtles that get 35 feet tall. They're pretty much going to bloom all summer yeah. long. If you're looking for... Um, trees with fall color, with spring color, you know, we can go through and talk about what's important to you in a tree, whether it's fast growth, whether it's lots of shade, and I can tell you which trees would fit that bill best, but I can yeah. tell you that except in special circumstances, Bradford Pear is not on that list, and in our area, unless you're down in King William or somewhere that you have super deep soil, uh, standard southern magnolia is not going to be the tree you want. Something like, uh, the little one they call Little Jim, Gem, G-E-M, that's the one you see planted around the Papa Doe restaurants, and uh, it mm-hmm. doesn't develop as deep a root system and consequently doesn't hate our soil as much. But uh, it, it just comes down in figuring out what you want from a tree and then choosing a tree that's going to meet those parameters yeah. if it exists. Now, if yeah, you want one that grows t- quickly, lives 200 years, blooms all year long, uh-uh, <laughs> that's just not going to happen. But uh, <laughs> yeah. there, there, there are lots of good trees out there.
12: Well, I tried a sycamore, and that got frozen, too, three years ago or whatever when we had the big freeze. So that's when I put the Bradford pear in because I do have one, and they do grow fast, and they do mm-hmm. provide a lot of shade, but you're right, after, you know, 15 or 20 years, they start to fall apart. But
3: Usually uh, more like 10 or yeah. 12. But do, do remember about wintertime watering. Uh, there are a lot of plants that both, you know, last December and back in 2021, there are a lot of plants that would have made it through just fine had they been watered thorough before that super hard freeze but the combination of being dry plus being very very cold that killed a lot of things that shouldn't
12: have died Mm, okay that's good advice too okay well thank you that tells me what i need to know i think I, i i may trim down that magnolia and just see what it looks like and if it's too bad we'll have to take the whole thing out but well, I
3: live by Mark Twain's axiom uh, when he said the uh, best way not to have to remember what you told somebody is just tell the truth. And uh, so I'm sure I haven't always told you what you want to hear, but based on my couple of years' experience, yeah. <laughs> he says tongue in cheek. Uh, based on that experience, uh, that that's what I would do were it mine. So don't hesitate to call me back when you come up with more questions.
12: All righty, thank you, Bob. I appreciate it.
3: It's always a pleasure. Thank you, sir. Goodbye. All right. I guess you I better pause here and talk for a moment. And uh looks like I get to talk to you about my good friends at Medina Agriculture. And once again, such a pleasure talking about Stuart Frankie and his fine company and all the products they produce. One product that, uh, Stuart wants me to feature, well, two or three of me wants me to feature, but the new Growing Green 961 is turning out to be a really good fertilizer. It's, uh, derived from totally different sources. There are no manures in it, uh, high in nitrogen, which means it goes further. It costs a little bit more, but it covers a bigger area. And, uh, it Best of all, has no odor at all. Now, I find I still don't mind the old growing green, and a day or two later, you know, that smell pretty much goes, especially if you spray the area down with Medina Plus. But a lot of folks just say, man, I I just don't like that aroma of most of the uh... manure based fertilizers well the new growing green 961 doesn't contain any mature and it's pretty much odorless another great product that they make are their liquid fertilizers the has to grow plant and the has to grow lawn now don't get them mixed up the lawn is for grasses only but for your flowers for your shrubs for your hanging baskets for your house plants I just don't think you can beat the Hester grow plant. I alternate it with Medina's fertilizer they call their liquid fish blend. And let me tell you, it's certainly proven to be a winning combination. Bottom line is Medina's been right here in our area for 50-some-odd years. They make quality products that work with the soil, not against the soil, and they simply work. Look for quality products. If you want to see the full list, go to medinaag.com. If you want to talk to the people who know them pretty well, simply to go to a good nursery or garden center that carries products from Medina.
1: South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. News talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071.
3: All right, back to gardening. Uh, Don tells me we've got a bunch of open lines, so if you've been getting a busy signal and you want to get in before our 8 o'clock visit with Howard Garrett, probably be a real good time to call 210-599-5555 while I say good morning, Chris.
2: Good morning, Bob.
12: I'm good morning, sir. Questions for you. All right. Hey, uh, so I just bought this place, and there is a row of 13 crepe
2: myrtles. Uh huh.
12: Um, That are oh, they're they're growing about 25 feet high. Mm -hmm. Um, They've got trunks. They've got about about every other one of them is multi-trunk, and the others are single trunk. But they're only about five of us.
3: They're only about what now? Oh, Chris, I'm afraid your phone just cut out on you there. Uh, Call back. There's probably an open line. Not real sure where we were going in our discussion about uh about uh about all those crepe myrtles, but uh love to finish that conversation, but find a find a spot where that cell works a little bit better <laughs> and uh, let's go to Tony up next. Uh good morning, Tony. Morning, Bob. Good morning, sir.
11: Yeah, hey, I called you last year about I had the uh I bought that uh Garden ready uh, soil, and it was uh, wasn't cooked yet. Yeah. But this year, like you said, I've got a great
3: garden going. <laughs> patience, patience is uh, solves many problems. I didn't say it was easy and wasn't frustrating, but I'm I'm pleased to know that things are going better for you.
11: Oh, I'll say. Well, I got a question on uh, the tomato jungle that I've. That I have now. <laughs> Yes, sir. It is so thick from top to bottom, and it's overflowing my five foot uh, construction uh, mesh cages. Oh okay. So they're doing great, but I was concerned about maybe uh, should I, uh, I got a question about should I be pruning s- uh, some of that to maybe get some air flowing in there?
3: I wouldn't. Um just leave them alone, huh? you just leave them alone they're people but they're mainly people that are from further north and we won't categorize them in (laughs) any specific negative way Uh, my grandfather was a Yankee from Connecticut so I I can't speak ill of uh, folks north of the Mason Dixon line but gardening is very definitely different when you get much further north and up there they tend to do what they call suckering their tomatoes and thinning them out and if you want sunburned fruit and ruined tomatoes go ahead and thin those tomatoes out and that that Texas Sun I'll ruin the fruit for you. But no, they're, they don't, you know, just be careful uh sticking your hand in through the foliage because you sometimes find wasps and spiders and other things uh that you might not really be interested in grabbing hold of but no just enjoy the bounty of what you've done and keep in mind that every green leaf is producing sugar which is what you know makes your tomatoes sweeter more flavorful and gives your plant the strength they need to produce a maximum number of fruits so Hang a blue ribbon on your front door and pat yourself on the back. Sounds like you're doing, you're growing an extremely good garden, and I just keep up what you're doing. I would definitely, you know, keep up with spraying the liquid seaweed because with dense foliage, uh, you can have an increasing problem with spider mites. Uh, Sometimes, if you get a problem with the leaf footed bugs or some of those, it's harder to identify that you have a problem and even tomato worms those big old hornworms sometimes the same way they're harder to spot when you have dense foliage but uh thinning no that's not in my that's not in my gardening techniques for south texas
11: all right well i'm glad to know that Um uh, i've got a few uh limbs now coming off way down at the bottom
3: mm-hmm.
11: not many but a few that are getting a little of that rust on them
3: sure and, uh, I might just go through and pinch off some leaves if it's anything that, uh, you know, a, a little bit of that is normal where you, uh, You know, as the leaves just age. But if you're getting any yellowing along with the spots, that can be what we call early blight. I'd pinch off the leaves you see it on. I'd spray with some corn water tea. But uh, new growth coming out of the base is not a problem. That new growth can produce tomatoes just as well as a big growth can. Now, the cherry tomatoes are going to go on producing all summer for you. Your bigger bigger fruited varieties are going to slow down on production once the nights get hot. Uh, but at this point, I'm just going to tell you, keep on doing what you're doing. It sounds like you're doing Bob. very well.
11: Sounds good, Bob. And I've got one more. Um, I just need a reminder. I've heard you mention it. About, uh, I've got these uh, huge squash plants, but they just, over the last week or so, exploded. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I've, all I've got is one of those turkey-based-in-needles. Uh-huh and I was I was wondering about uh should I put that BT in the main trunk or do I gotta yeah. hit every oh no I don't it have
3: to hit uh every single no, the, the the squash vine borer moth Typically lays its eggs within the first foot of stem, and you don't even know those worms are in there until the whole vine just suddenly crashes. So move about eight or ten inches out from where the vine comes out of the ground. Inject your BT at that point. Your crooknecks and straight necks have a hollow stem, and using your baster, you can spray that way up into the stem. The more solid stems, like the zucchinis, you might want to move back and forth. You know, maybe the first couple of two feet of stem, and just make uh you know, what What a doctor would call a little sub-Q or subcutaneous injection in there. And that's going to be the best thing you can do to protect from the squash vine borers. And and on the BT, get the just get the liquid concentrate. I put about a tea, between a teaspoon and a tablespoon in a cup of water. So I like making it a little bit stronger. But it's harmless to you. It's harmless to people and pets. So if you overdo it a little bit, it's not going to hurt anything.
11: Okay, that's what I was going to ask you about the quantity that I should be injecting.
3: Yeah, it's. I always figure somewhere between, you know, say 5 to 10 cc's. And a lot of squash varieties, the stems are uh fairly hollow, and it's easy to get lots in. some varieties, the stems are a little bit more dense, in which case I prefer to put, you know, a smaller amount, maybe a cc, 1 cc, just up and down the stem several places.
11: I've got a whole bunch of that patty uh, squash.
3: Yeah, patty pan or bush scallop, as they call. Yeah, uh, yeah and right. I've not, I haven't grown that the past couple of years, so I can't really tell you how hollow or solid that stem is. You'll know, you'll know very quickly when you put that baster okay. in.
11: All right. Well, I've got so that's all I got to do this morning. Then I don't have to, I don't have to uh, uh, prune tomatoes.
3: Oh no, no, my, get out! And plant if you. Before. Well, if you're looking for one thing to do, get out and plant some okra so you'll be ready to make gumbo and that great combination of tomatoes and okra and things like that. And It's just now time to plant okra, so if you're looking for something additional to do, that's what I'd recommend for today.
11: All right, Bob. Well, I appreciate your time and appreciate your show.
3: Well, thank you, sir. I appreciate your call this morning, and we'll talk again. Let me talk about Rhonda's Nature's Way for a minute, and then we'll come back and visit. I understand we've got Chris back on the line. But uh right now, what a pleasure it is to talk about a lady and her staff. Who really, really imp- have improved the lives of so many people in this area, and it's just Rhonda's Nature's Way is just one of the most incredible places you will ever visit. Both for their products, but most importantly for the knowledge that they can share with you. You know, a lot of these problems, that a lot of people go and take prescription meds with all the side effects to correct. Lots of those things have natural solutions, and that's what Rhonda specializes in. And she also specializes in preventing problems before they occur. I take a good immune support formula I get from her I, I rely on Rhonda for a lot of different things and uh I just have never been disappointed. and As we get into the hot summer months, once again, if you spend as much time as I do outside, you're going to sweat. And if you're sweating, you really need to replace that fluid and replace those electrolytes. I don't like doing it with a sugary sports drink. I love a product called Ultima that I get from Rhonda. It's just a little package of little powder you mix with water. It tastes wonderful. There are about ten different flavors. And it gives you everything you need in the way of electrolytes without all those calories from sugar. I could go on and on. Rhonda also does reflexology. She does beamer light therapy and red light therapy. And just, it's a great place to visit to maintain your health, to feel better if you have problems without a lot of uh, pharmaceutical medication. Find out what I'm talking about. Go see her. Today would be a great day. Not tomorrow. She's always closed on Sunday. But uh, Monday through Saturday, Rhonda's Nature's Way is open and ready to help you. you. They're over in the shopping center at the corner of I-10 in Callahan, kind of across the parking lot from Sprouts. Not a big store, but once you get in, you'll be amazed at what all she has and, uh, again, most amazed at the knowledge that Rhonda and her staff to have to help you. That's Rhonda's Nature's Way.
1: South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster, News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071.
3: All right, back to gardening. And... Uh, Getting a little close to our visit with the Dirt Doctor. We're going to talk to Chris and maybe have time to choose, squeeze James in there. But, uh, Chris, glad you, glad you got your connection back. We had uh, talked. You've got a row of crepe myrtles, some of them single trunk, some of them multi-trunk, and about 15 to 25 feet tall. <laughs> Take me on from there.
2: Okay.
12: So uh, these, uh, not every other one is multi-trunk. And okay. So, uh, and uh, the, the single trunks are anywhere from six to ten inch diameter. Okay. Uh, they're only they're only five to six foot spacing, and so they're as you can imagine they're growing, you know, very narrow canopies. Although it looks really good, I'm wondering if that's really what's best for these trees at this close spacing. They seem like they want to get bigger. but I don't know if the canopy is going to survive. the other one out or what.
3: Again, that is totally up to you. If you if you want to see, you know, a big shapely individual crepe myrtle, yeah, you can cut every other one out. If you want to have more of a hedge with lots of color to it, um, you just leave them. Most people, I won't say most people, many people ruin the shape of their crepe myrtles pruning them properly, and basically you don't have to prune them at all if you chose or if whoever planted them chose a variety that's an appropriate size i get lots and lots of people that you know they wanted a six foot plant but they planted a 25 foot variety and then we have to go into all about how to prune but with a grape myrtle the single most important thing you do is be sure that the root flare is exposed if they're that size it probably is uh beyond that, water, fertilize, and enjoy, and if you want to change the shape to some extent, uh you can. But again, the don't don't ever top them. That's we call that crepe murder, and it seems to be an, a problem that people in Houston there's just are addicted to. But uh uh when you cut them back at a random point, you just get this little bird's nest of growth and you just ruin the shape of it. Yeah. If you feel like you have to reduce the size you follow that trunk down to where you already have a smaller limb coming out growing the direction you want it to grow and you cut right above that point but my advice to you unless you're just looking to totally change the appearance is just sit back and enjoy they sounds like those plants have gotten along a lot of years without any help for humans and no reason they won't do it for another 50 years
12: well you just save me a bunch of work uh so that's great. I, I'm wondering if I have time for a quick pecan tree
2: question. Yeah,
3: go right ahead.
12: Okay. So last week I heard you talking to a gentleman about a pecan tree, and you you started to ask him if he was hitting suckers because mine's, mine's not uh, mine's not budding out leaves either. Uh-huh. Um, but, uh huh. But you asked him a question about whether it was getting suckers down lower on the on the main branches. This right. Guy, some pretty good-sized main branches on it that are getting suckers. I've got about seven really healthy-looking suckers. Do you think this tree has hope? Or
3: Oh, I think it definitely has hope. Is the suckering at the base of the branches, or is it pretty much along the length of the branches?
12: It's kind of along the length, and it goes up to about uh, 10 feet high. Uh, this thing, this thing, the trunk branch, is at about 5 feet. Mm-hmm. So yeah, a good five feet up the, the, the main branches that come off the trunk. If you've got
3: if you've got if you've got sparse growth, but it's throughout the tree. Uh, I would not be worried. I think you very definitely need to check the root flare. I think probably sick tree treatment. uh, Go to Howard Garrett's website, DirtDoctor.com, and follow that whole program, and that's going to help that tree come out, but uh, I think you're looking probably at drought issues, and to some extent, pecans are just simply late coming out this year. See, a lot of pecan trees that, that were several weeks late beginning to sprout at all, and a lot of them haven't put on their full summer canopy yet so you don't know, do the sick tree treatment check especially to be sure that that root flare you know is exposed now if you have a big limb that let's say is 20 feet long and you only got suckers coming out on the first 10 feet well that may indicate that the end of that limb is dead and at some point it's either going to fall down or need to be cut off but where you've got growth space throughout the tree that just tells me the tree is in a bit of stress and is slow coming out and i certainly wouldn't do anything you know major as far as pruning at this point until you really see how and where and how strongly the tree is going to come out you will help that with uh, watering with feeding and uh, with good care and like I say sick tree treatment is a good place to start
12: yeah, i've got to, i've got to really good start on that but i gotta pick up more stuff to continue the sick tree treatment so very we'll, good uh, continue that and see how it goes
3: well i'm glad you got your line back and glad we got to talk about the crepe myrtles especially and uh sounds like you've got beautiful plants but you know short of just wanting to see individual plants put that saw away and concentrate on the pecan tree listen i appreciate the call uh chris I- i'm sorry um yeah, Chris and uh James will try to talk after the after the break with the Dirt Doctor. Ah, uh, you are listening on to KTSA Radio. South
1: Texas gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. Talk to Bob now. 210-599-5555.
3: Ah, uh, but don't dial uh, right this second because the lines are taken up by a good man, Mr. Howard Garrett, the Dirt Doctor. Well we save the last few minutes of today's show for a few more questions and uh Keep in mind, we do this again tomorrow morning from 8 until 11, followed by the Pet Show with Dr. Dan Kirby. Right now, we get to talk to the plant doctor, well, I guess we could say that, uh, the dirt doctor, Mr. Howard Garrett. Uh, good morning, Howard. Good morning. Hope this line's okay, a little staticky on my end here. That sounds sounds, okay, that? sounds pretty 90% good here, and sometimes with the phone right. lines, that's the best you can hope for.
13: All right, good.
3: It's a it's a beautiful morning in South Texas. Is it the same up in the Metroplex?
13: Yeah, it's beautiful. I got to do a little videoing today of my garden for the people that aren't going to be able to make it to our open house. I'm, I think I've got it figured out how I'm going to do it. Going to do it in three different videos: front, upper back, and lower back, and sh- show some of the more interesting uh, things and the additions that have been being done to the garden.
3: Well, that sounds like fun. Uh, are you going to post this uh, on DirtDoctor.com after after the, I believe the event's, what, the 26th of this month?
13: Yeah, it'll be for the members uh, first. Was yeah, it, uh, yeah. Can't come. It's going to be the 26th of uh, this month. It's uh, Friday, I think. <clears throat> but uh, then we'll put it on the, on the website for everybody after that. It's uh, looking pretty good right now. Some of the things that are in bloom right now probably won't be in bloom then, so it might be good for everybody uh, (laughs) to see it.
2: Yeah,
3: that's fun. Yep.
13: Nellie got into trouble yesterday. She uh, decided she was going to go after a rat that was in one of the black traps that we have. Mm -hmm. And her nose fit in the hole real well, but it didn't come out very well. Oh goodness! She shrug it around for a while and end up boogering up her, her, her snout a little bit, but she's definitely got some rat terrier in her uh, <laughs> uh, blood. There's no question about that.
3: Oh wow! Well, she's she is a character between her tree climbing and uh, it's that's that's fun though. You know, she's just she's a character just as Tater is, and I don't care how many dogs you have or have had. Every one of them is an individual, and you've got two characters in your family right now.
13: Yeah, usually ours are mutts. We've had some purebreds uh, as well in the past, but most of our dogs have been the the Heinz 57 variety, and I think that's my favorite. It's always fun to try to guess what the mix is, and then we... (laughs) sometimes get test it so we find out and usually the guest is not too close
3: <laughs> well i think they are undoubtedly especially the adopted ones are the most grateful dogs you will ever find it uh um they they just they just seem to know that they've been rescued from a from an uncertain future and uh they're just they're they're good loving companions they're just no two ways about it i love my kitty cats as well but uh Uh, Dogs are just just special family members, I guess that's the best way to put it. Sometimes they frustrate you, and sometimes they make you angry, and most of the time they just make you smile.
13: One of my uh, consulting jobs I was meeting with uh, just a couple of days ago, they're big, it was my first time there, and their great big old white dog met me at the front door just smiling, happy to see me and uh it looked like it was at least part great pyrenees mm-hmm. sure enough it turned out to be a great pyrenees german shepherd mix and boy wow. a beautiful big dog
3: and they are among I the like, friendliest uh, like dogs the little- yeah. <laughs> but uh yeah great pyrenees are and they're they're true working dogs i know a number of people that have them too Uh, protect their sheep and uh and things like that and they but they're they're invariably friendly but uh yeah like like you say you've got them from uh and have had them from very small to very large but uh only problem with the bigger the bigger bloodlines is that they generally don't have such long lifespans and uh oh that's you know it, i i like a dog that's going to live 15 or 20 years uh we've we've had among close friends uh you know danes and uh and boxers and ones that just just didn't have as long a lifespan and boy it's hard to lose them it's you're truly losing a family member so the the little ones tend to stick around we had a little rat terrier in the family at one point and don't know how long that dog lived but uh because she wasn't a puppy when they got her but she lived 26 years after that so it's uh, well, it's amazing, amazing with good care how how long they can stick with you
2: Yeah that's a long time
3: Well I had a question for you that uh I realized I don't have a good answer for that somebody asked me said that uh seeing lots of products and I've looked around and seen the same thing and this is talking everything from compost to fertilizers to various other things that advertise themselves on the labels as being organic but there's no certification there's no omri listing there's no USDA certification is when when these people are just sticking an organic label on things is uh uh is there any process? Is there any required certification? Or are people, we just supposed to take it on faith uh, that some of these things really are organic?
2: Yeah, it's
13: going to be breaking at least state law. Uh-huh. If people are putting... <clears> throat> my throat's messed up this morning. If, if they're putting or, organic on the uh, label without it being uh, certified and approved by the state, they're breaking the law. So the, what they would do is uh stop sale the products and Mm -hmm. pull them off the uh, shelf that's why people that aren't certified organic have to be careful and they use language a lot of times that kind of goes ring around the mulberry bush you know it doesn't directly say the product is is organic what are you running into that has that terminology on there
2: that you're suspicious of
3: um well it's not really and some of them are some of the big bigger companies and uh um, yeah, we'll talk about it off the air sometime. But I've pretty much looked the bags over. I need to go look the bag of bottles over, you know, very carefully. But the uh, uh, common, common term is natural and organic. And uh, But a uh, couple of uh, uh, mulch products, a couple of compost products, and a couple of actual fertilizer products. But And I don't know what... Is it a state requirement that it has to be state approved? Is an Omri listing good enough? I, you know, I, I I know that to advertise, I know they're they're real picky on foods, and I think, uh, you know, anything shows up in the grocery store they they the uh, they require some sort of certification level on there, either USDA certification or whatever but just garden products I, and and I've got to go look more on our shelves and on our products because I just hadn't really thought about it till somebody pointed it out and said well how do I know that that's really organic and uh I, you know my answer was well that, that's a company I trust but I'm not I'm not sure what the legal requirements are as what they have to do before they can put organic on the label.
13: Well, that's real clear. It's not fuzzy at all. Uh, if people put natural organic uh, approved by TORC, uh, mm-hmm. that's one way of going. You're saying that, that the product has been approved by Texas Organic Research right. Center. Right, which, is which we certainly product approve product. of. I, there, I, I wish, yeah, there, I
3: wish are, there were... Go ahead.
13: There are some products like that out there, but... The certified organic thing has to be approved by the state, and it's tied into the USDA approval. And if mm-hmm. that's not on the label, it's breaking the law. Now, the other thing that, that you can have is uh, you can have approved as organic product through the uh, exemption list. There's a, uh-huh. uh, you know, a an exemption list that got fouled up years ago because some people took advantage of it said that their products would do everything from, you know, controlling snakes to cooking your
2: breakfast for you. (laughs) (laughs) Right.
13: They actually actually had a second list about to uh, be officially approved that was going to have hot red pepper on it and some of the other things that we recommend all the time, uh, Mm -hmm. orange oil and things like that. And it didn't get approved because people had taken advantage of that first list. But the way that works is that you get approved, and you can call yourself organic if it's approved, as uh, okay uh, as having one of those products It's on the exempt list. Mm-hmm. But you got to go through that rigmarole to do that. And there's quite a few products on the market out there that are in that category. For example, all of the 20% vinegars are on the market as... Organic uh, registered products because of the acidic acid is on the exempt list. Uh That's all stated on the on the label. It's all approved. If they're just saying it's organic on the label and it's not approved, it's not USDA approved or on the exempt list, they're breaking the law.
2: Yeah,
3: I need to do some more research and find out, and I need to. Uh, get back with my customer that was asking the question because i I was really surprised, and I guess I should have looked a little bit more carefully and uh, uh, but i I thought that was a good question, and that does clarify it I, I you know you and I both spent a brief time on the organic board, and that turned out to be less than satisfying in a number of ways so uh yeah,
13: that um, was, that was useless. some of the uh, things that you and I recommend all the time though are not. Maybe this is where the confusion is coming in. They're they're not legally certified organic. There's a bunch of stuff that I recommend that's not, you know, officially organic. Maybe that's mm-hmm. where the confusion is coming in. Maybe um, so. You know, azomite and cornmeal and all kinds of things are not certified organic. Mm-hmm. But they're mm-hmm. they're certainly acceptable to uh, to the program that. You and I recommend.
3: Oh yeah, and, and things like garlic sprays, things like liquid seaweed, things that are not likely to now is another thing because um I you know, I wish that there were good sources of non genetically modified corn, but where we're looking for basically the trichoderma that it grows, I'm not sure if we if we said okay it, it we have to be hundred percent certain there's no modified corn in there, we wouldn't we wouldn't have a lot of corn uh to be able to choose from out there so i guess uh, uh there are a lot of things that are acceptable but it it just comes down to whether they can legally say that they are organic but uh you know i i can't think of any problem with uh, things like azomite with things of course green sand i guess there's an issue sometimes of a uh, uh, little bit of contamination with arsenic and things like that but it, it just <laughs> brought up a, an interesting question and um um anyway i I appreciate the the clarification on that, and I just need to go read some labels a whole lot more carefully and maybe talk to the people that are putting it on that label that might want to do a little bit more work before they do that.
13: Well, there may be more to the story uh, also, but the easiest way to do it is to go to to, uh, DirtDoctor.com or TexasOrganicResearchCenter.com, and we have a very thorough list of products that are acceptable and unacceptable Mm-hmm. Uh, on that uh, list. Greensand, for example, every greensand product that's on the market has arsenic and lead and and other heavy metals in it. It's just a matter of whether they're there at background levels uh, and not a problem or they're a little high. And there have been some problems with that uh, in the yep. past. You kind of buyer beware about some of the natural materials, you know, the rock minerals and and some of those kind of things. And what you said a minute ago about cornmeal, um, it's not hard to find GMO-free and totally uh, clean corn. It's impossible. People (laughs) that are honest uh, about cornmeal (laughs) will tell you that. Now, if you buy some of the grocery store cornmeal that's sold in much smaller quantities and everything, and it says GMO-free and totally organic, that's about the, uh, the closest you can come to making sure that it's totally uh, clean, but right. you're going to pay way more money than if you buy yeah. one of the cornmeal uh, things that we use you know, in 40 or 50 pound bags that, right. that are agricultural-type products.
3: And of course, it'd be nice if we could all grow our own, but uh, I just can't maintain that big a garden anymore. <laughs> I've got too much else going on, and if uh, but things you're going to eat, yeah, it's it's fun to grow a little bit of your own sweet corn. But uh, uh, that is so true. And uh, anyway, there the whole cornmeal story is uh, an interesting thing, and I I don't know what the latest is. I. I heard that there was a uh, a court case where Monsanto had gone to a corn farmer and said, you know, hey, um, you know, my my pollen has drifted over onto your crop and therefore I own your seed, and the guy turned around and sued Monsanto for trespass. And, uh, last I heard, the, uh, the, uh, farmer had won that case. Now, whether it's on appeal or what, I don't know. But so many things I wish I had time to look up and follow up on. And there are a few good things that have happened out there. But as far as the genetic modification, that's, that's one thing that I have to say I'm seeing more and more of is that little butterfly that, uh, you know, with the, um, GMO project approval on it. And I, I sure look for that in the grocery store whenever I'm shopping.
13: Well, it would be interesting to look into that because I don't, I'm not sure that that is a fool, foolproof thing either.
2: Uh-huh. But
13: cornmeal people have told me that it's just uh, out there so ubiquitously that it can't be controlled. For example, you can go and buy organic corn seed and plant your own like you suggested there so that you think you would have perfectly clean uh, corn crop in your garden. That, that won't guarantee it either. Because because that corn seed that you bought might have it contaminated in there. And the corn industry people have told me that, admitted to me, that it's just impossible at this point to control And Unfortunately, it's the same with some of the other crops. But here's the good news, and this is really the only thing that's important. The, The solution to that, the GMO contamination and having a pure organic situation, Is from using the mix of products that we talk about and recommend, and the program that we recommend, and the elimination of the stuff that is so highly contaminated the synthetic fertilizers and Mm -hmm. the toxic pesticides, and that that process that we recommend, and what's created by the curious biological. Uh, explosion uh, in the soil and on the plants, in the sap of the plants, and everything neutralizes all that GMO and other contamination that might be there.
3: Right, right. Organic programs—the answer. I just, and I'm, I'm encouraged by how many people have made the conversion to being fully organic, and I'm, I'm discouraged. I walked into Tractor Supply to get some. Uh, uh, cattle feed and watch these people just going out with their uh uh certain big name weed and feed turf builder products and things like that just with carts pile full of it and you just you just want to say do you really know what you're doing to your pets your kids your grandkids when you're putting that stuff on your yard but i don't know i feel like we we have an ever-increasing impact but uh uh there's still a lot of bad stuff out there
13: well, it's it's interesting. Whatever, whoever brought up uh, what you're talking about there. So, it's um, the answers. The organic programs. All I can tell people. Yeah. If you yeah. use, uh, you know, everything you used, and I probably do this. If everything you use in your garden uh, does not say it's certified organic, that doesn't mean that you're not, you know, a really clean, natural, organic. Uh, <laughs> producer you're just not going to be able to legally sell
3: yeah yeah
13: whatever you grow to grocery stores and call it organic
3: yeah and that's uh i that and you know that's what we do and what we tell people and uh tell them if you're and, and there are a lot of good products out there that that are Blended, but they 're not you know one hundred percent they're like you say there 's a little contamination here and there, and it doesn 't mean that they aren 't acceptable in the organic program but uh, um, it's they, you know I, I guess what it comes down to is we just all try to in everything we eat and everything we garden just try to stay as organic as possible and yep. the results for good health and feeling a lot better about uh not having to wash your produce with a lot of a lot of things to clean it up before you eat it i still love to feel like i can walk into my garden and you know pick a few tomatoes and just munch on them while i go on about the the many activities that i have to maintain but uh anyway it's an, an interesting topic and uh like i say, i wish torque had and we need to talk more about torque sometime but i wish they had the The funding and the manpower and uh, just the reputation that more people would want organic certification from Torque because uh, that's certainly the one that I trust more than anything else.
13: Well, it's all going the right direction. People just have to understand that if you're looking for some buying products where every ingredient in the product was produced organic,
2: Mm -hmm. you ain't going to find it.
13: (laughs) It
3: (laughs) Yep. And your own garden is still the is still the, the the best source because you at least know to a great degree uh, how you 're doing but changing the subject drastically I love your idea about the new t- tomato cages made from the uh, you know the heavy wire that's uh, that 's a reasonably priced you know long long lived way to make a good tomato cage with the cattle panels
13: well, I got started because I went to uh one of the hardware, or tractor supply and a, a couple of other uh, lumber yards normally have the concrete reinforcing wire, and they didn't have it in stock. I don't know why yep. people have gotten away from it. It's kind of interesting, but they did have the cattle panels in diff- different sizes, and I just, mm-hmm. I think the best one, and I haven't done the video showing doing it, I'm the only one that I've done so far is the one I sent you that was a yep. smaller piece that i right. had after i'd done a piece of art with the rest of it but using the four by eight and cutting mm-hmm. the middle and bending it into a an a-frame shape you just mm-hmm. set it over the top of the plants you're done it's really a a cool fast way to do it plus you can take them out flat one way or the other and store them easily too
3: well and like you say you do need a bolt cutter to do it most of the uh Farm and ranch stores that I deal with don't carry the eight foot panels, but they carry 16 and sometimes a 20 foot panel. And, uh, I can just take the trailer in, take my bolt cutters with me, and in about, uh, you know, 90 seconds per panel, I can turn it into two eight footers or two 10 footers. And, uh, but, uh, it's, uh, you know, and, and those things are durable. I, I, you know, I have used that in, for fencing in areas that, uh, I needed to stop things like hogs and really needed to be certain that livestock couldn't get through it and uh gosh I've got things that I put up 20 and 30 years ago that are just as good as the day that I installed them so this is this is truly a a lifetime quality to medicate you are making when you do that and uh and not and easy enough to make. I mean you have to, you have to have a little bit of strength to use a pair of bolt cutters, but not all that much. I, most of the ladies that I know that garden are just as capable as the guys are of doing a lot of that stuff.
13: Yeah you don't have to stake it into the ground and worry about that you just set it wherever you want it. it works mm-hmm. uh, pretty pretty well. One of my listeners after talking to uh, hearing me talk about it, sent me pictures. Of what, how they use cattle panel, and they just cut it into pieces about two two foot wide and made mm-hmm. square boxes of it. Uh-huh. That they connected with hog, hog rings or uh, wire, and that's another good way to do it as well. If you go that route, you'd probably need to put some reinforcing rods or some kind of stakes in the ground to hold it, unless you made them wider than two feet. But, right, but you know, and I mean, the, cattle panels are
2: a good way to go
3: and and the other thing about using your hog rings to do that is you can't fold them up if you don't have room to store them you know in in the large form so to speak in fact i think old malcolm beck was the first one that i saw do that and he made he made some that you know really flattened out pretty well but uh and and people should be aware that when you go to a farm and ranch store that you can actually get different weights and uh I can't, I don't recall the gauges, but uh, there are, some of them are heavier duty, some of them are a little lighter duty, but even the lighter duty are as much as you need for a tomato cage, and there's a little cost savings there.
13: Yeah, if anybody comes up with any other ideas, send us pictures,
2: we're open.
3: Amen. Like to learn new stuff. <laughs> like to learn new stuff every chance we get, and Oh, sometimes it's uh, it, it it amazes me things that seem so obvious and just kind of that V eight moment like duh why didn't I think of that and and uh, this is this is one of them I really do love the tomato cage idea but well anyway well you guys get out and have a wonderful week hope all your preparations uh, go well moving along toward your big open house day and uh, uh, tell Ms. Nellie be careful where she sticks that nose in the future.
2: <laughs> yeah, she is. She is a, a
13: funny dog to watch. I tell you for sure. A little tater too. Well, we'll uh, do this next week. And in the meantime, if anybody has any questions, maybe uh, dirtdoctor.com will help you out a little bit there.
3: Uh, always the best source for the best information out there. Howard, you guys have a good week. And as always, uh, thanks for a little bit of your Saturday morning. Really enjoyed it.
4: Thanks,
13: Bob. See you
3: next time. All right. Thanks so much. best Howard Garrett is the Dirt Doctor, dirtdoctor.com, best source on the Internet for all kinds of uh, good information out there and, and things that really do work in South Texas. 98 90- Well, anything outside of DirtDoctor.com to me is highly suspicious because most of it comes out from a different part of the country where simply growing different soils, different growing situations. But I think you can truly trust trust what you learn on DirtDoctor.com. All right, I know Don's got the phone lines open for a few more calls. Right now, I get to talk to you about the window source of San Antonio and... It's, uh, just fun to talk about somebody that is so dedicated to quality. But Moses and his staff have, uh, they're just sticklers for quality. They are out to win every award. I think they've won just about every award a builder can win with their windows and doors. Most of them come from right here in Texas. And, uh, uh again, another thing that sets them apart is their warranty. And of course, you know, they, they couldn't give you such a good warranty if their workmanship wasn't fantastic. But, if you, if you are doing anything out there and people tell you, oh yeah, we've got a lifetime warranty, be sure and read that warranty and see what all it covers because most windows and things you'll find, well, it didn't cover labor. Well, it didn't cover glass breakage. Well, when you deal with the window source of San Antonio those things are covered. They have a true warranty that covers just about anything that can go wrong and other than a hailstorm I can tell you there's not much that's going to go wrong. Uh, their showroom is located over in southwest San Antonio. They welcome you to visit and uh, they're happy to answer your questions and uh, they're just they're proud of their work. I mean uh, the owner has over 10 years experience over 5 years owning his own company as, as I said they've won just about every award they can win and they're out to help you with an award-winning installation on your property. Even thinking about windows and doors, it's a big investment. Get more than one bid, but be sure you include the window source in San Antonio in your bidding process. Like to learn more? Give them a call 210-879-4433 210-879-4433
1: South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071.
3: All right. Well, let's get back to gardening and back to the phone lines. Looks like we've got Judy and Beverly and Kit waiting to talk. Uh, Good morning, Judy.
7: Well, good morning, Bob.
14: I need your help again.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Glad to be here for you.
14: We have uh, two Desperado sages, which Uh I truly love. But I have noticed that there's bugs on them that look like caterpillars
3: okay um uh, eating flowers eating foliage what are they what what kind of problems are they causing
14: it looks like it's eating the foliage because one part of my desperado is turning like it's dying but then the other part is very nice and green but i have noticed that the caterpillars now are on the the new gro- growth and i don't know what to put on them
3: <laughs> well you can kill them you know as a direct contact killer spinosad is totally safe for you and for the pets and leaves no residue behind uh, it does have to make contact with them but uh, it's it's sort of instant death for caterpillars, and yet it's uh, organic and very safe to use. The other option to both kill and prevent uh, is one of the BT products, and of course BT stands for Bacillus thuringiensis, not the BTI, that's strictly for mosquito larvae and gnats and things. But regular BT products um, remain on the foliage and remain effective for some time we're always very careful to only spray in very limited areas because bt doesn't distinguish between good caterpillars and bad caterpillars and if we got carried away would be harming a lot of our butterfly populations and all but uh, the the things that tend to eat the foliage on desperado sage and other things like that are not really from a from a flying creature that we necessarily want to protect. So um, if you want to get some Bt mix-up and spray just in a limited area, I think it's fine. If you'll add maybe a teaspoon of molasses per gallon of spray, you'll make it uh, maybe 20 or 30 times more effective. That was told to me by one of the biggest producers of Bt out there, and I don't know why more more containers don't say that, but you would mix according to the uh, directions on the label, maybe a teaspoon, like I say, of molasses per gallon of spray, and just spray the foliage, and it should take care of any caterpillar problems you have.
14: Okay. Now, when, uh, I'm fairly new here, so I'm not sure. How do you spell this uh, spin aside? Um,
3: it's uh, S as in Sam, uh-huh. P-I-N-O-S-A-D. It's, okay. Now, that's it's a the
14: product by itself?
3: That That is the active ingredient in there. It's sold under different brand names. Um, oh. There's a company called Natural Guard that makes something they call Spinosad Soap. There's a company with a weird name. They sell a product they call Captain Jack's Dead Bug. And that's straight spinosad, but uh, all of them will tell you in pretty big letters what the active ingredient is in there. But spinosad is safe enough that uh, we actually give it to puppy dogs in oral form uh, for flea control. So if it's safe enough for my dog, then I'm probably going to feel like it's okay in my garden because I'm very picky about what I would let my animals have.
14: Uh-huh. Uh Now, is, so I would either use something that has spinosad in it, Mm-hmm. or another product that would have the D, DT product in it?
3: B B as in boy, as in bacillus. Oh, yeah, oh, the, the spinosad is a direct killer. It gets on the caterpillar and kills the caterpillar. The BT products, uh, BT acts as a stomach poison. It stays on the leaf, and a caterpillar takes even a single bite out of the leaf, consumes the bacteria, and dies within a few days.
14: Mm-hmm. Well, which one would you recommend, the spinosad or the BT
3: product? I would say that it would depend on how severe the damage is and um, if you know and and how you're able to spray. If you can actually, you know, be sure that you're spraying thoroughly enough to get all the caterpillars, then the spinosad, uh, you know, is probably all you need, and it gives you basically instant results. Now, I will tell you with Desperado Sage. Uh, or with most of the other sages. And there's green cloud, There's, oh, there are many different forms that are excellent plants. But we normally don't see many problems with them unless they are already stressed. And the things that can cause stress are being planted too deeply in the ground. Uh, always, we've been in a very severe drought for several months. So getting too dry or excessive moisture, staying too wet, where the water actually driven the oxygen out of the soil... Those are all things that contribute to the plants being less healthy than usual, and that's usually when the caterpillar problem starts. So kill the caterpillars, but look very carefully. Check the base of the plants. Be sure you actually see the roots flaring off from the stem of the plant because many landscapers and many growers are very careless about planting the plants too deeply in the ground or too deeply in the pots. And soil piled against the stem up above that root flare long term can be deadly to the plants. Mm-hmm.
14: Okay. So now now if I use the spinosate, I don't need to use the molasses, but if I no. use the BT product, then I would put a teaspoon per gallon in the B-T Exactly. B-T
3: That's exactly right.
14: Okay. Okay. Well, I'll let my husband know that and we will Head off to a nursery to pick them up.
3: (laughs) Very good. One or or the other. (laughs) Well, and uh, when you have questions, don't hesitate to call. awful lot of folks move from other parts of the country, and you are exactly right. Things are a little different. So make your list of questions, and we're always here to help you.
14: Thank you so much, Bob.
3: My pleasure. You do the same. Thank you. Goodbye. All right, let me get my last break of the show done, and... um, Then we will come back and talk to Beverly and Kit. I get to talk to you about Fanix Nursery and Garden Center. And Fanix has been around for a long time, Uh, approaching 90 years now. I know it's well over 80 years since old Grandpa Eddie Fanix set up shop over on Home Green Road. And that 10 or 12 acres today is right where Fanix is and operated by the third and fourth generations of the family. They know plants and they have a lot of quality, quality merchandise out there. Uh, a few of the things they wanted me to mention was that they uh, um, do have certified sweet potato varieties in now. And now it's getting pretty close to being warm enough to uh, uh, to plant your sweet potatoes. And, again, they've got certified plants in. Uh, if you're a fan of Plumeria, Frangy Pangy, they've just gotten a new shipment from one of the bigger companies out there. They have lots of different crepe myrtles. They have lots of uh, different roses still in bloom. CPS Energy has a new program called Mow Down Smog, which uh, will help you with lithium-ion battery-powered outdoor equipment, such as the Ego line that Phanix carries. Just lots of good reasons to get over and see them. They're open seven days a week to serve you. You can always check out upcoming events like their Big Tomato Contest, which I think is scheduled for like the 10th of June. But if you want to see all about those things, just uh, go to the website, which is FANIC, F-A-N-I-C-K, FANICNURSERY.COM.
1: South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster, News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071.
3: All right, back to gardening. About six minutes left in the show, and that should be just about enough time to talk to Beverly and Kent. Beverly's up first. Good morning, Beverly.
8: Good morning, Bob. Um, I greatly enjoy your show and, and Thank you your, your nursery uh, shades of green. Um, <laughs> I have a, a two-part question, uh, kind of a, a, um, a little bit from the last caller about the spinosad. I did want to ask you a little bit more about that. Okay. Uh, for, uh for dogs because um, that would be really helpful but uh, my main question calling uh, is about what is the best yard grass uh, for shade and sun in the hill country like in the Bernie area uh, that doesn't require too much water um, like a yard grass
2: Okay. and
8: then, and then ways to make that uh, grass inhospitable to please so that <laughs> Uh, you know, so, this time of year.
3: so we've only got 30 minutes or so of material that we could talk about here. But first of all, uh, on the product for your dogs, uh, it's uh, called Comfortis, uh, C-O-M-F-O-R-T-I-S, and you should get it from your veterinarian. But uh, it is it is safe as a flea-control product uh, as long as your dog isn't subject to seizures or has had seizuring problems, but if you want to know more about that, call tomorrow between eleven and twelve when you can talk to Dr. Kirby about it directly. But um uh it is it is a safe product and a lot of people use it. Uh grass in the hill country is uh, there just is no grass that doesn't have to be watered initially at least to get it started. And to maintain it, uh, Bermuda is the grass that uh, you can stop watering and it will go brown but won't die as long as it doesn't go for you know several months without water. But uh, it is it is a grass. It, it's what I have in my yard, uh, and I believe me, have plenty of weed problems and all. But uh, it it I, I can't water. I have a well and I choose to use my well water for a greenhouse and other things. But uh, Bermuda is probably your toughest grass where you want to maintain, you know, in effect, a manicured lawn. Uh, The densest and thickest form of Bermuda grass is uh, would be one of the TIFF, T-I-F-F, varieties. Uh, The TIFF varieties, unfortunately, are not planted from seed. They are planted from existing pieces of sod, but that's what's used on golf greens and uh, tea boxes and things like that. So it's very tough. Stands up to foot traffic very well. Little dogs are no problem. Big dogs are going to wear down anything you plant. But the thing about uh, Bermudas is they do require pretty much full sun. Common Bermuda is less expensive because it can be planted from seed. And you have to use a good deal of water to get it established in growing. Uh, But once it's established, it's probably the toughest thing out there. Uh, Grasses for the shade. Um, there's nothing that is going to be, you know, totally maintenance-free. The two varieties of St. Augustine, one of them's called Palmetto, the other's called Delmar, are truly the only real lawn turf-type grasses that will do in the shade. And I don't object to them. I just think most people have too much grass. But if you have a limited area in the shade, the uh, uh, nice thing about St. Augustine grasses is they don't get chiggers. Uh, they are evergreen for the most part unless we have a really cold winter but you do have to keep watering you can't stop watering or they will die they are planted from existing pieces of sod now if you're not concerned about having a manicured lawn then uh then you can go with some of the native grasses which will give you you know a, a nice look but they're not something you're going to be out mowing and turning it into just you know a uh, you know, a, a a park-like atmosphere, if that is a good way to put it. Does that help?
8: Yes, yes, that is great. Um, okay, well, thank you so much. I enjoy your show.
3: I uh, will look forward to a longer visit at another time. But let's get Kit in here before the show's over. Good morning, Kit.
14: Hi, Kit. Good morning, Bob. Three quick questions. Good morning. Questions. Good morning. Three three quick questions for you. Um, the first one, I think you already answered. I can put my sweet potato slips in the ground now, right?
3: Correct. You certainly can.
14: Okay. All right. And in some of my um, uh, sweet potatoes I put in, they're starting Mm -hmm. to get flowers at the top. Is it time to start pulling them out of the ground?
3: It's time that you certainly can start, you know, harvesting some. I would tend to just probe around the ground with a finger around the base of the plants and harvest uh, some to enjoy. The plants, the bigger potatoes that are directly underneath the plant, are going to continue growing and increasing in size. They don't really ripen, uh, but you can leave them in the ground until the plants actually turn brown and start to fall over. But if they're up to flowering size, I'm sure you're going to find some little golf ball-sized potatoes that you can uh, locate with your index finger, and they sure do taste good.
14: Okay, and then how do I store the potatoes once I pull them out of the ground?
3: Uh, just uh, don 't wash them, brush them dry, and just keep them in a cool, dry place. Try not to pile one on top of another uh, if you can have if you have like a shelf system or I have some old coke crates you know that are largely open is what I store mine in
14: okay, and then onions the same thing uh, the tops are starting to turn
3: over so they're ready to be pulled if the tops are just I... dis- if the tops are discoloring they're ready to pull if they're yep. still green you can leave them store them exactly like potatoes and i've got to go